Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, guys, welcome to Back to Conspiranormal. It's your host, Adam, with Serfiel standing by. I have returned. We wanted to welcome a very special guest tonight that we're uh, we're really excited to have on, and uh, that's uh, Dr. Richard Spence. And uh, I will go ahead and give a little intro here that uh, Dr. Richard Spence is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Idaho, where he has taught since 1986. He holds a PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Spence's diverse research interests include espionage, occultism, and secret societies. He did the 24-part The Real History of Secret Societies for the Great Courses in 2019 and is currently completing another course on Crimes of the Century. His major published work has included Boris Savinkoff, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925, which I have just read. He is the author of numerous articles on revolutionary Russia, intelligence and national security, International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism, American Communist History, and other journals. He has also contributed to New Dawn and other popular publications. His current projects include Flying Saucers and Secret Agents and American Spies in Revolutionary Russia. He's been a commentary consultant for the History Channel, the International Spy Museum, and Radio Liberty, and consulted for and been interviewed in documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation, Mamatov Productions, and other Russian media outlets. Popular guest on radio shows and podcasts, just like ours. Richard, <laughs> welcome to Conspiranormal. <laughs> thank you, and, and thank you for the... Uh... The great introduction, and and I want to congratulate on this, you on something you pronounced Savinkov correctly. There we go. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many ways that that particular name gets pronounced. And uh, there is, is that say that's a that's a usual mispronounced mispronounced name. Uh, uh, I'm I'm actually not familiar with the guy. I'm not familiar with who he is actually. So that, that's that's good. I've never heard of him, and I, I still got the name right. Well, it's certainly auspicious. So there we go. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I, I, I should also add to that list that you are also uh, co-author of the uh, Empire of the Will, the first one. Yeah. Yeah. With Walt yeah, Bosley. With good good friend of the show, Walter Bosley. Um, I first encountered you, I think, talking about um, – the Secret Agent 666 book, and then you're searching for James Shelby Downard, 
um, piece that I believe was that in a, a Paranoia magazine. It was. It was. It, it actually got posted a couple of places. I think it was an early version of it was on the like um, League of Western Fourteen Intermediate, the Lo-Fi website, which was which was run by uh, Skylar Alfagren. And then it got uh, a, a, a large version of that was picked up by uh, Olaf Phillips over at uh, Paranoia. I, I I have to tell you that, that putting that on my resume and showing it to my dean was always kind of <laughs> um, but nevertheless I, I got away with it. Um, and uh, and then I'm actually I've expanded that again um, because Adam Go Rightly. I'm sure you know is yes. working oh, yeah. on another sort of tranche of downard memoirs. I don't think I've he, given away he, anything too secret about that. Uh, no, he's told us about that, and we are eagerly uh, anticipating it. If you're if you're involved in it, uh, that sounds uh, very interesting. Yeah, well, I I got to see those materials and go through and you know wow try try to sort of run the the, the history you know to figure whether downard's actually talking about real people and events. Uh which is always the interesting and usually he is yeah um i don't mean that he's necessarily that what he says is absolutely true and in many cases i really hope it isn't but nevertheless he's usually talking about real places and events and so hopefully that that would be out and there's more material there excellent i hope that gave you some some new rabbit holes because uh searching for james shelby downard was uh really fascinating uh, just how you used uh, carnivals of life and death and kind of looked behind all those stories to see if they really related to anything more tangible yeah well basically what you do is you go to public records you know census marriage birth marriage you know divorce death records those are all pretty much are increasingly digitized and the other thing you do is you go through old newspapers which are also conveniently digitized that speeds things up a lot and newspapers in particular even more than public records are where you can just you can find the damnedest things um more sort of material will will come up i i found more clues probably in a newspaper article than i've yeah. found just about anything else i found that to be true also especially if um the people involved were um you know, had any kind of wealth, they're usually in the society columns, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's especially true for Downard and his family. Um, well, you really are are known for just digging into the history of secret societies uh, from a more uh, his, historical and uh, less um, of the usual, you know, super speculative place that people are used to when people are uh, dealing with this material. Um, but we just wanted to kind of start with just talking about, uh, the history of secret societies in general and the, the mystique that they have and why are, why are people so fascinated by them? Well, the simplest explanation is because belonging to a secret society means that you've been chosen to be part of a, a group, which has made itself a group, which is, which has essentially distinguished itself in some ways. And that's, you know, there are... I think I have the, the basic ingredients of how you can tell what a secret society is. And usually it's not that it's secret, all right? So for instance, to take maybe the most obvious and you know, most popularized, the most successfully franchised secret society of all time is Freemasonry. 
And it's not a mystery that there are free. I mean, they put up a sign outside of town telling you that there are Freemasons in town. So uh, when Freemasons say that we're not a secret society or a society with secrets, that's, that's a fairly accurate description. So the, the secret part in a secret society, you know, it can be its existence, but it's really about what the society does, what, what, what its particular beliefs, what its rituals are, the, the secrets, the particular knowledge that it bestows on those people it chooses to be a part of it. So if you become part of a secret society, it's, it's not something you can just walk in and join. It has to be something in which you are selected and you're also vetted for it. And, you know, to give maybe a, a, a simple explanation, the, the low end, the sort of light end of the secret society spectrum, but it's there are fraternities and sororities because you are chosen. Some are chosen, some are not. And there's a particular criteria when people are chosen. And then you're chosen to be part of a, a group, which is, you know, the big deal about it is you were chosen and other people weren't. And so what secret societies do is that they make people feel special. <laughs> that's, what, that's maybe the simplest way. It, it gives people either the reality or the illusion of of status in some way that they have they, they have been accepted into a a group and then the thing that that group promises to bestow upon you of course is some kind of well some kind of wisdom you're going to gain through this or you can also be you can you can gain professionally you know and they if you join a fraternity what is it you're told well you're going to make friends for life you're going to be part of a ongoing tradition of past and present and future brothers within the group. And really what that boils down to, isn't it, is that at some point these people can help me get a job yeah. or they can be of use to me in some way. That, that's the other way to think of it is that what secret societies are is that they are a time-honored human means of networking. And it's, you know, becoming part of the of a of a group which sees itself as an elite in some form or another but it's that, that that status of being special i think is the great appeal to it and that you got in and other people didn't what about the role of of uh symbolism because all secret societies throughout time seem to employ symbolism and multi-layered or esoteric symbolism that i guess serves to um, fascinate in some cases can serve to uh, terrify also. Well, symbols are useful as a means of recognition. So again, within Freemasonry, the compass, the square, uh, the letter G all have particular meanings, uh, symbolic meanings within the craft. And, and symbols are just, well, letters are symbols. Numbers are symbols. They, they convey, they're a representation of something else. And the useful thing about symbols is that they can communicate a lot very simply and they can communicate a great deal without it necessarily being spoken or explained after it's been explained to you once. It's the significance of something. And here's an example. It's not a secret society symbol, but the American flag. The American flag has... A history, it also has a mythology to it. It, it's, it becomes an, an American color. I think it's fair to say it's a kind of 
ritual object. It's it's imbued with, in some way, it's seen to embody certain particular characteristics of the country. It's a kind of, of symbol, not of the country as a kind of territorial thing, but it's this kind of you know, group entity, this kind of psychological manifestation of the population. I don't know. Um, but the, the flag conveys a whole variety of very complex meanings mm-hmm. that, that are understood, but are understood without being, you see, even trying to explain it, it's, it's difficult to do. I don't know. It's like trying to explain God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, God is everything. And, and uh, so I think that's the, the importance of symbols. Symbols can convey a great deal of meaning, but that meaning, say, one part of the secrets within many secret societies is that the meaning is only apparent to those people have been who have been initiated into its mystery. Right. And you can find that going back into what I, I think are often the roots of a lot of modern secret societies are the 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 ancient Greco-Roman um, mystery religions or mystery cults that they're called. And they were religious, but they also included a great deal of, you know, people were initiated into the mysteries. Only some people were chosen for that. You, you, have, you had to pass tests. You also had to swear. The other thing that's common in secret societies, you have to swear to keep the secrets, okay? You don't talk about what goes on within the brotherhood, sisterhood, whatever it might be. But one of the things that was very important in the ancient mystery cults, again, was the importance of symbols. And this is this is why when you're looking at these things from the outside, it, it makes no sense. So, you know, we know that in one of the most important of the ancient mysteries was the thing that started in Greece and then spread ultimately throughout most of the Roman Empire called the Eleusinian Mysteries. Mm-hmm. And this this was the kind of Cadillac of ancient mystery cults. This this was the one that people wanted to belong to, but which apparently most people couldn't. They were fairly choosy. Uh, and the, the whole high point in this was that you went through these nocturnal rituals with others where you were taken down into caves and you were shown fire. You were shown things. And in a the best you can get of it is that what you were shown was some sort of, you know, you were, you, a show was put on for you. But what you were shown were, as close as we can put together, sort of the secrets of life and death. What everybody wants to know, right? And, but it included things like at one point, there are these references that, that people were, they would be shown a basket full of objects. And they were supposed to pick these objects or things would be, you know, an acorn would be shown to them, and then they, the significance of that would be explained. Mm-hmm. So people came out of this experience feeling that they had received this sort of cosmic wisdom, which other mere mortals didn't possess. And that they, the way, the only way that this could really be understood wasn't in some kind of narrative. It wasn't something you could set down and explain, like how to make a watch. But it was, it was an experience. It was, a, you know, it's what people call a religious experience. And uh, I can't say I've ever had a religious experience, but I've talked to people, I think, who've honestly had something. And the one thing that generally comes out of that is that I, I really can't describe it to you, you know. 
It's one of those things that you can only go through on your own. What secret societies do within this sort of group dynamic is they tend to take those religious experiences sometimes and make them a group experience, which only sort of strengthens their impact. Symbolism is, if you don't know what the symbol means, then you don't even see it. But to though, and it seems that very often what people who are members of secret societies really enjoy doing is seeing their symbols in a public setting and they're aware of what those symbols are and the importance of them. But all the rest of the profanes walking around don't know that. See, that's another thing that makes you feel special. Right. The kind of like the, the hidden in plain sight kind of concept. Yeah, actually, I think it was, you know, I, I think Downard came up with this term. I'm not positive of that, but uh, revelation of the method. <laughs> right. If he didn't, he used it. Yeah, he most definitely did. And revelation of the method is, yeah, essentially, think of it this way, sort of, you know, cultists getting off <laughs> on on performing rituals in public without anybody else being aware. It's It's basically what it is that, some people think goes on at the Super Bowl every year. Yeah. Right. This is why you right. have people who pour over Super Bowl ads or who pour over m music videos that come up looking for all of these kind of, of arcane symbols, uh, occult influences. And those things are never hard to find because they're, they're you know, in part because they're around everywhere else anyway. Yeah. yeah. So I think we just often miss how common those those things are used and i'm not arguing that that is necessarily totally imaginary maybe they are putting on a ritual in plain sight but you see if you're outside of that the point is you just don't really know you can suspect all you want to but you'll never know only those who are enlightened those who have been chosen to know the secrets will know what's really there the thing about that that aspect of like the Super Bowl stuff is like it's always determined that that is that it's negative or it's nefarious in some kind of way when it may not actually be. It's just that the initiated understand it differently than the uninitiated. Yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, the other thing it could be is it's simply a set designer who's seen some occult symbolism yeah, and thought, yeah. that's cool. I think I'll just incorporate yeah. this. Um, that's as easy an explanation. But see, that's the thing you can't be sure of as to whether this is just, you know, a set designer's choice or that this is someone who's actively displaying this for ritual purposes yeah. or that it's both at the same time. Never leave out the possibility that both of those those factors are at work. Yeah, well, but, you know, the reason why you always there's always this inference that there's something nefarious going on is because you're not in on it. <laughs> that's why i mean whenever you're looking at uh, i mean anytime there's a group of people who let's say have not chosen you they've chosen someone else and they're all off somewhere in their lodge doing something which has got to be cool that because you're not part of it well then you're i think almost inevitably going to resent that and envy it to a degree and view it as something that, well, the reason why this is hidden from you and most everyone else is that it's obviously working against our advantage. In some way, these people are meeting secretly so they can 
take advantage of us in some way, or they can have favoritism. They're all being, you know, they're, they're, they're all in cahoots in some way, uh, looking out for each other, getting each other jobs and contracts and the rest of us and leaving us out of it. Which on the other hand is just what people do anyway, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I mean, really, I mean, it's true. We should all be nice in this way, but people join. I mean, you know, I, I once told somebody, I said, look, were you ever with someone? And the question was, I don't know, should we invite Bob? And the decision was, uh, I don't know, let, let, let's not bring Bob, let's not bring him into this. And you went to the movies or whatever, and you didn't bring Bob. Well, right there, you were engaged in a conspiracy against Bob. You decided that you didn't want Bob along, that he was going to be too much trouble, or that Bob drinks too much, and you don't want to take him to the party. So you left him out of it. You didn't take him along. Bob is so, a coward. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure that in most cases, secret societies really do anything that people in most circumstances wouldn't do anyway, but they do so in a more organized pattern. And they do so as a self-described group, which attracts attention to them. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing about, about symbolism and understanding the meaning, it's the other thing, it's like an inside joke. And... I think, again, probably most of us have been on both sides of that, where you're in some case, and it's pretty clear that all these people find something. You, you say something and everybody laughs. And what it is that you said some word, which is some part of a joke that they share, but you're out of this and you have no idea what they're laughing at. And you don't know whether they're laughing at you. They're really not. They're just laughing that you use this word that has a particular meaning to them, but you don't get it. And on the other hand, I've, you know, I've been on that side of it. I've been on the side where I've been part of in jokes. And it, you can often see that it's extremely frustrating to people who just don't get the joke. And then you have to decide whether you're going to let them in on it or whether or not they're not getting the joke then also becomes part of the joke. That makes it even funnier when the person involved doesn't get it. We talked about the, uh, the ancient mysteries and you put the example of the Eleusinian mysteries, but um I wanted to ask you a little bit about like the role of these secret societies and tribal societies, because I mean, this is not, I mean, this, it, the history of secret societies goes way, way back even before even the, the, the mystery religions. I mean, it's kind of like ingrained in just human culture. Well, it's, I, I think secret societies are just, they're a, just an outgrowth of, in many ways, what people do anyway. And while we're, we're social animals, we're also fairly selective ones. So, so people will form groups. They'll form, you know, in, in school, it's called cliques. Uh, I think all of us went through school and there were certain, you know, there, was, there were certain groups that you were identified with or you weren't identified with. You know, there were certain groups that you were sort of part of or, there, or maybe you weren't part of any of them. You know, maybe you were a total pariah. Uh, there, are, there are people who seem to be completely excluded from any of these groups, but, but usually what you do is you negotiate adolescence, is you sort of try to find your group. You find other people who will tolerate you and you'll tolerate them and you'll get together and you'll develop your in-jokes and your whole sort of little internal mythology of your group and, and hate on the other ones. Um, and then, you know, later we'll all become adults and <laughs> become friends or become Freemasons or what it might be. So I think it's just it's just the way that that um, in in the same way that I think conspiring is just a a natural human response. Having a 
mysterious or ancient origin seems to be uh, very important for many of these secret societies and they kind of make their own complex genealogies that they end up fighting each other over who's the real uh, you know the the real inheritors of these these titles and, and names and uh, so that's that's a big important part is is having some kind of um, some kind of pedigree whether engineered or factual yeah it gives you it gives the group an identity it gives it a, a history you know the group is just like a person the person it needs a name it needs some identity you know if you're in in drama i'm not but my wife was and you know one of the things in terms of characters is that you you have the character has a backstory you know, and and in order to play a character, you need to know what this person's life was like. Even though this person is completely imaginary, but you bring these things in so that you have some sense of what it is that you're you're trying to portray. I mean, the maybe the classic example of the creation of a really a mythological origin story for a secret society is the one that is often the 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 connection between the Knights Templar and the freemasons yeah which yeah is and again just start out by saying that you know it's not my point to try to debunk that because i can't i can't say that that there isn't one on the other hand there's there's really there's just no actual evidence of any there's no document of any kind that establishes a link between them yet by the 18th century so you gotta give us some time you know historian here so it's all about time so the the templars basically officially go out of business they are banned as an order no longer operate under that name at least in the early 14th century in the early 18th century 400 years later you've now got this this is the period when starting in england freemasonry becomes a big deal. There had been small lodges around for some time, but really what sort of gets all of this going is that in 1717, four lodges in London join together and form a thing called a Grand Lodge, and then beginning admitting other lodges to that and chartering more lodges. And that's really where Freemasonry takes off. And some people believe that's when it began, but it's not. 1717 isn't when it began. It's just when it really became a, when it went public, that may be one way of thinking, when it really sort of became a, a larger factor in society, when it became something that men with money and influence sought to join because it gave them greater status. That's what really makes it take off. But by that time, at some point over that three to four centuries, this idea had become embedded and it must have become embedded early on in these masonic lodges that there was a link that in some ways they were heirs to traditions and beliefs of the knights templar even though no one could actually produce this was just something that was believed based upon i guess received verbal tradition which is another way of saying somebody told you and that's they believed it because somebody told them but what we don't know is when somebody started when the story began in the same way that you you don't really even know when when these lodges began you've got things you, you got something that's that calls itself a masonic constitution that 
exists around 1400, early 15th century, and by certainly between 14 and 1500, there were lodges in Scotland, England, and, and elsewhere. I mean, again, Freemasonry wasn't a big deal, but you now had these, what were called speculative lodges. And the difference between a, a, an operative Masonic organization and a speculative Masonic organization was that the speculative Freemasons are just pretending to be Freemasons. See, that's the other sort of weird thing to keep in mind. In Masonic lodges this, this day, all of the, the symbolism, the, the holy relics, okay, the, the symbols of the order itself are all things connected to the art of masonry, to, you know, to stoneworking, the cutting, and really the laying of stones, brickwork. Operative Freemasonry. Yeah. And, you know, so the people who actually do the work would be operative Freemasons, you know, someone whose job it was to go out and build a wall. Uh, but speculative Freemasonry are just basically a lot of rich guys pretending to be working men, which doesn't really seem to make a lot. Why would they do that? I mean, if you were going to pretend to be skilled craftsmen, okay, so and keep in mind, most of the guys sitting in these lodges, whether it's the 18th century before, are not skilled craftsmen. They're noblemen or wealthy individuals for the most part. They were gentlemen. So why would gentlemen want to ape commoners? There is a whole lot of uh, people with means now who do like to, uh, you know, wear Levi's and Carhartts and uh, get a bunch of tattoos. So maybe that's <laughs> similar. They, you know, anything that becomes fashionable, I guess. But it's, but see, these these are to me the sort of real mysteries about this because, mm -hmm. you know, sometime between roughly fourteen hundred and fifteen hundred, these early lodges emerge. They've already developed a kind of mythology. You know, some of those trace their origins. You know back to uh, King Solomon, uh, others would try to push that. I think somebody pushed it all the way back to Adam. Okay, so who was the first Freeman? Well, it must have been Adam, because he was the first guy, right? Of course, first, I've heard and, Enoch and he too, and Nimrod. Right, or as, or as ancient Egypt, but you notice it's kind of all over the place. It, it, the roots go back to ancient Egypt, the roots go back to Adam, the roots go back to King Solomon. In other words, they go back to some place in some much more remote, semi-romanticized area of time, generally that we have no contact with. And I think that's pretty much the way the Templars get roped into it. The other thing that influences the, 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 the reason why the Templars are, are adopted is the, the common link or perceived link of anti-clericalism. Right. So in the 18th century, Freemasonry was broadly identified with anti-clerical, which at that time essentially meant anti-Catholic views. And, and and that was quite true. And that's why the Pope in 1738 banned, I said, Catholics can't, these are pernicious societies and no good Catholics should be a part of them. Right. And they're right. up to no good. And just about every Pope after that continued to ban Freemasonry well into the 20th century. So right from the beginning, there was a, there was a kind of war between the Catholic church and Freemasonry. Well, and when church and state, uh, are not separate, then a, a heresy is inherently political. Uh, that's kind of, I get that from uh, the writings of Peter Lamborn Wilson talking about all the Islamic heresies. Um, and so 
that would kind of set up uh, this relationship between uh, speculations that these secret societies have these uh, heterodox beliefs and also have some kind of um, plan to change or disrupt the political order. Well, the thing about secret societies, whether it's a Masonic Lodge or, I don't know, Rosicrucians, Brotherhood of the Octopus, whatever you want to have, is that they're, they're kind of natural breeding grounds for plots. I mean, really, they're, they're natural breeding grounds for conspiracy. And that isn't necessarily connected to anything that the society itself believes. It's not necessarily connected to that. But here again, just to use Freemasons as a good example, um, the way you get into, into the particular lodge, the way you're a member, member it's, it's a selective membership thing. A key element in secret societies is that it, the recruitment must be selective. So what it means is that a group of like-minded people or people who obviously share enough in common that they want to hang out together, then pick other like-minded or in some way simpatico people to be part of this brotherhood, to be part of this organization. So what you're already doing there is remember, you're not going to get a broad cross section. There's not going to be a lot of diversity within these groups. And I'm not so much talking about racial or ethnic diversity. I'm talking about the psychological diversity. There's, there's got to be important factors that have brought these people together and led them in the direction uh, in, 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 into this society. So once you do that, once you created a group of like-minded people, people who share attitudes, beliefs, or values, and then you swear them to secrecy and bind them together by oaths that they might take really seriously or not so seriously, but the oaths are still there, it's not necessarily so much what it is they do during a meeting of the lodge, but it's interesting that what happens five minutes after the meeting is over same group of people are standing around, same group of people associate with each other. And let's say, for instance, in true Masonic tradition, the two things you weren't supposed to talk about in a lodge were politics and religion. For the very simple reason, that's the two things that would create arguments. And you want to remember that lodge is supposedly about fellowship, and you don't want to start having people discuss things that are going to cause arguments. But that's only within the confines of the lodge meeting itself. The same group of people can then adjourn to someone's house or to a bar or someone else, or they can go stand outside, or they can simply declare the meeting over, and then they can start talking about politics. And more likely than not, than in a kind of broad, you know, and just a, a, a random mix of people, you're going to find that there are similar views and similar ideas. And if you then combine that with these people having influence in business or politics themselves, maybe they're already involved in politics. Well, that, that's how revolutions get started. And it's, um, I think it's fair to say, I think when, when, when Freemasons argue that there's nothing inherently revolutionary in Masonic ideas, I, I think they're being honest about that. 
But on the other hand, the very nature of the organization means that it becomes a perfect breeding ground for political conspiracy, which may or may not have anything to do with Masonic agenda, but it has to do with the political agendas of those people who are in that organization. And that's one of the things you can see that in the French Revolution, you can see it in the American Revolution, you can certainly see it in the Russian Revolution. It's, it's one of these things that comes up again and again, is that the Masonic lodges are rather the people who are brought together through those lodges become vastly influential in the political process of those revolutions which isn't the same thing to say as they control it. It just means that they're very influential. Yes. And that's another popular misconception is that it's the Freemasons are doing it because it's all part of some Freemasonic plot. It's to further the agenda of the secret society itself and not the further the agenda of the individuals in that secret society. And so you kind of dealing with the whole kind of chicken or an egg thing. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that you could make an argument that the political conspiracy wouldn't exist if the lodge that had brought those people together that formed the political conspiracy hadn't existed. So I don't know. One way is that secret societies yeah. like Freemasonry are a gateway drug. There you go. <laughs> uh, they, they bring people together. And then once the people are together, other things can happen. That the, this association, that the group itself can become involved in things that isn't necessarily a, a an outgrowth of its particular beliefs, but is really an outgrowth of the dynamics of the people that are in it. Well, can you talk a little bit about how secret societies are a really good front for intelligence agencies and, and, a, and a breeding ground for the people inside those intelligence agencies? Because if you can, if it seems to me that if you can keep the secret within the lodge, you can keep other secrets as well. Well, okay, so go back and in a secret society, one of the things is that it, it secrets, particular knowledge only for mem members only knowledge are imported or is imparted to those who have been chosen within the organization. But then the thing that you are told that is emphasized uh, over and over again, usually, is that you cannot share this with people outside the society because those people have not been chosen and they are not worthy of it. So this is the one. Now, here's kind of an interesting thing. If you actually want to know this, the details of Masonic rituals, you can just go online and find them. All right. They've never been hard to find because as soon as there were lodges, there were going to be people that would leave the lodges and they would break their oaths, no matter how many times they'd sworn not to, and they would tell people about it. So there've been people who've been blabbing about Masonic and other, and other rituals ever since those rituals have existed. But the way that it was once explained to me as to why, and the question is, is that someone was, well, they were, they were kicked out of a, of a secret society because they had publicly revealed its secrets. They had talked about its, its rituals. And so my question uh, to one of the people who had actually been involved in kicking the other person out, I said, well, you know, considering that, you know, I know this stuff and I'm not even a member of your club, okay? I'm not even a member of this and I can find, then what, what's the big deal about it? And they go, well, the big deal isn't that he really revealed the secrets because yes, anybody can find out those secrets, but the point is he broke his oath 
That's what he did. He swore that he would never betray them. And when he broke his oath, therefore he broke his oath to all the rest of us and he cannot be trusted. So that's another way you can sometimes think of it is that what these oaths are about and the secrets isn't necessarily the secret itself. I mean, if you know the details of Masonic rituals, what do you really know? You know, a lot of grown men apparently doing kind of silly things from the outside looking at it. But the important thing is that it, if you're participating in it, it has a different meaning, and you took an oath not to reveal the secret, and if you did so, you've broken your oath to the entire group. You have failed the fundamental test of character that would qualify you to be a member. Yes, that makes perfect sense. The uh, American Revolution and the French Revolution are very interesting with the workings of secret societies, and in particular, I think the French Revolution has kind of more seemingly more intrigue and, and mystery surrounding some of these uh, Masonic and quasi Masonic organizations. Can you, can you get into that a little bit of uh, those two revolutions and what they had in common and, and um, with, I guess, what would be the legacy of these um, more revolutionary Masonic groups? Well, it was, I think I was saying a little earlier that, that one of the reasons why the Templars became attractive or were attractive as putative ancestors to 18th century Freemasons, you know, the Freemasons of the era of the French and, and American revolutions was that the perception was that the, the Templars had been persecuted and destroyed by the evil Catholic church. They were mm -hmm. victims, see, they were victims of the church's tyranny, which uh, you know, uh, the Pope signed off on the dissolution, if not necessarily on the, on the, on the destruction of the leadership. But yes, the, the, the Catholic Church was complicit in the destruction of the Templar order. And therefore, if you have these political, widespread political sympathies within Masonic lodges that are anti-clerical, that question or defy the power of the church, then anybody who was persecuted by it in the past is, is a martyr, okay? They're, they're, that's, this is why you would feel a kinship towards the Templars. But as you see, we in the 1700s are struggling against the, the tyranny and ignorance of, of the church and the Templars had tried to do this before, even though there's nothing about them struggling against tyranny and ignorance, but they certainly were, uh, the church again was complicit in their destruction. So if you don't like the church, the enemy of the enemy, obviously, is my brother in, in this case. So that's one of the things in, in the course of the 18th century, as it grew, Freemasonry kind of divided into two different branches. And these branches still largely exist today. And basically, it was British Freemasonry and Continental Freemasonry, which is pretty much to say French Freemasonry. Now, the interesting thing about this is that all of these early lodges, even the early lodges in France, came from Britain. They were essentially English lodges that had been brought to France, brought to France rather. And but the membership became you know, switched from being predominantly English to predominantly French. So French Freemasonry, by the latter part of the of the 18th century, by the 1760s and 1770s and 80s, to the time of the French Revolution, had sort of assumed its own character. 
And so there was a Grand Lodge. There were a couple of them, but the, the Grand Lodge, the, the kind of super lodge that controlled, well, not, we don't want to say control, but which chartered, which brought into being and to some degree coordinated lodges under it in France was called the Grand Orient Lodge, the Great Eastern Lodge, the Grand Orient. And the Grand Orient Lodge was the preeminent Masonic organization in France, just as the Grand Lodge of England and Wales, the United Grand Lodge in London represented British Freemasonry. The basic difference that emerged was this, British Freemasonry evolved as a secret society of the British imperial establishment. It was, in fact, with only a couple of exceptions, one of them, strangely enough, being George III, almost all members of the British or male members of the British royal family since the 18th century had been Freemasons, often holding high positions in it. And therefore, British Freemasonry really became connected to something that was uh, loyal to the crown in principle, which was kind of inseparable from the, from the monarchy and, and the British establishment. Whereas in France, things went in a different direction. In France, the temper became, temperament became more radical, more anti-clerical, more also opposed to the monarchy. And therefore, one of the things that happened in the French Revolution most notoriously is that King Louis got his head cut off. The king was executed. And while most of the people who killed him weren't Freemasons, some were. But this led to this difference between, and you can see this more in the 19th and 20th centuries, is that those Masonic movements on the European continent that descended or sort of took their lead from Grand Orient Freemasonry, and that was true for the lodges in Italy, for instance, in the Balkans, in Russia, too, interestingly enough. So Russian Freemasonry is, is a direct transplant by the 20th century of French Freemasonry, even in Germany, uh, to a degree, that all of these lodges tended to share what, what by the 19th century became, in many cases, a kind of, what I call it, a kind of broad revolutionary sympathy. It makes sense. I mean, it, it reflects the time period. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that it wouldn't be unusual to find someone, you say, in the, in the late 19th century who was both a socialist and a Freemason, because those two things were not seen... To, be, to run together because they challenge the existing order. So continental Freemasonry gets this revolutionary edge from the French Revolution, which it never entirely uses, while British Freemasonry becomes the Freemasonry of the monarchy and of the establishment. It becomes something which supports the established order, while Grand Orient Freemasonry becomes something which tends to oppose the standing order and thus does become broadly sympathetic. In other words, it, it creates this kind of natural sympathy between revolutionary ideas and, and Grand Orient Masonic Freemasonry, which isn't to say that you know, Grand Orient Freemasonry was expressly revolutionary in and of itself, but its whole attitude, this whole kind of anti-state, anti-monarchical, anti-church attitude created a mindset, it created the conditions for that sympathy that would, that would follow later on. So 
the difference, I think, if you look at the, the French and American revolutions, they, they, you know, they both occur in the late, late um, 18th century. The American about a decade before the, before the French Revolution. There are, there are physical links between them. So Benjamin Franklin, who is an American and a very active Freemason, is involved in recruiting European Freemasons like the Marquis de Lafayette and Baron von Steuben. You know, most of these, most of the Europeans who come over and support the revolutionary cause are, are recruited through the Masonic nexus. So it's the fact, you know, Masons know other Masons. You, you already, you know, you already sort of vetted these people. You know, someone who's been accepted by another lodge is, you know, a, you know, a lot closer to being okay than a total stranger. And so you would tend to go with the, the people that you would, you would know. I think that's often, you know, it's, it's, it's like the fraternity type of thing. If you're going to recruit someone, you're going to recruit someone from some sort of background in which they're already pre-vetted in some sense. So there's there's an overlap in personnel, but, but you know, in, in going back, but you know, Benj Benjamin Franklin is a great example because Franklin is an American Freemason who then becomes an agent of the American Republic in France, conniving and recruiting other Freemasons to assist the revolution. He also becomes a member of this probably what was the single most important and influential Grand Orient Lodge in France, which was the Nine Sisters Lodge in Paris, which I don't think is even founded until the early 1770s. But the, the Nine Sisters Lodge in Paris became in many ways the most influential and the most radicalized of the lodges. And that's one of the reasons why in the French Revolution you find it as a center of the, of the closely connected to the Jacobins who are the kind of Bolsheviks of the French Revolution. Uh, the later architects of the terror. And I mean, it, it, here's the closest connection I can give you to. The, the motto of the Grand Orient was liberty, equality, and fraternity before it became the So the entire motto, the very motto of the French Revolution itself is simply a Masonic motto, which is brought into that. I want to ask you a little bit about that because I was watching the the great courses today, um, the real history of secret societies. Uh, was there an idea in both the American and the French revolutions to create some kind of Masonic Republic? Was this a real idea of that time period? Because it seems like when, when you get from the American revolution to the French revolution, and then later on the Latin American revolutions, there's a lot, Mace, Freemasonry has a huge um, impact and a lot of influence there. And was, was, there, was there an idea to, to start some kind of like, not, I guess, a republic that had Freemasonic values? Well, I mean, the term Masonic Republic, I think, first crops up in the 18th century. And I've, I've heard it, you know well into the 21st century. Now, I don't know whether I mentioned this in the course, but one of the things that, that made an impression on me, and this wasn't that long ago, this is maybe 20 years ago, uh, was at the, the University of Idaho where I taught, and there was a, uh, a Naval ROTC officers commissioning 
at the at the end of the year. So the guys who've gone through the ROTC program were going to get uh, naval commissions. There was a ceremony, and because I had a number of these guys in my classes, and I was invited there. I guess I was chosen to be part of the club. I was there, and and someone else who was invited. I was just invited there, and uh, to sort of watch. But one of the people who was there to give a introductory talk was the the local head of the Masonic Scottish Rite. So that's kind of the Masonic Lodge on steroids. I won't try to explain what that is, but he was, he was, a, he was a local poobah representative of, of Freemasonry, uh, and a nice older guy, older than me. And, uh, but I was fascinated by what he started out. He came up and he goes, we live in a Masonic Republic. And Freemasons founded this country on Masonic principles, and this has all been part of a Republic. And so, you know, my organization is intrinsically linked with the whole establishment of the of the nation itself that you serve. But I thought that that was, you know, now that doesn't make it true, but it showed that this is what this guy believed. Mm-hmm. So the question is, okay, here's someone who believes this because I, you know, I assume probably someone had told him before, had made the same proclamation here before, but I think who honestly believed that really that this was a country founded by Freemasons, a Masonic Republic, and it was a Masonic Republic. So I think that idea is floated around, but, but here's my question. What exactly would a Masonic Republic be? I mean, what would that look like? Because you said the, the definitions uh, within Freemasonry were different from country to country and and grand orient versus british there well there's 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 a split between the continental more revolutionary freemasonry and the establishment freemasonry there's also this whole 18th century con you know british freemasonry and american freemasonry early on was torn apart by the 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 conflict between the moderns and the ancients And basically what they came down to was a conflict between those people who wanted to keep the emphasis upon the the mythology and the rituals, the kind of slightly esoteric and spiritual aspects of it, and those who wanted to put all that stuff aside and really make it more political and current. So the battle, in a sense, was between those who wanted to turn Freemasonry in a more political or ideological direction as to those who wanted to keep it in a kind of more esoteric, traditional uh, orientation. And and they quarreled for most of the century. And and eventually, what what eventually happened is that every lodge just pretty much went the way that it wanted to, the different... Um, they divided themselves into different groups. They, they, they agreed to sort of mutually recognize each other. But this is the point. Nobody's ever owned the rights to the name Freemasonry. As far as we can tell, there's never, there's never an original form that it was, a, it was an idea, a society that early on probably developed in widely separated places. Um, each of those would tend to develop in many ways its, its own particular traditions. Early lodges don't seem to have stayed in any kind of close contact. Mm-hmm. That's why the creation of something like a, a grand lodge that you know, sort of chartered or created other lodges, that was the only way you could sort of keep track of them. And, and maybe even to, if you wanted to impose any kind of ideological discipline that was the way you could do it yet the reality is is that every lodge really just did what it wanted to i mean they ran their affairs internally with little outward supervision 
Yeah, we're talking about a pretty loose organization. Yeah, it really is loose. And so for anybody who argues is that, well, you know, in my lodge, we wouldn't do this. Well, I'm sure you don't. But in the other one, you don't know, do you? So you can't really say what other people and they're in. It's like the argument that Freemasonry is traditionally and over, overwhelmingly an exclusively male order. Okay, women cannot be initiated into the lodge in regular blue Freemasonry. But there has always been from the 18th century. Right. Even yeah. when that rule was established, there were lodges that would defy that and would admit women. And of course, the, the most radical and infamous of these uh, secret societies related to this revolutionary Freemasonry is the Illuminati itself. Um, can you dispel some of these myths and, and, and realities uh, for, for people who may be kind of um, still uh, caught in the uh, information presented from this kind of uh, conspir popular conspiracy theory world? Well, I mean, one of the things that the, the guy who founded the Bavarian Illuminati in 1776, there's a coincidence for you, um, Adam Weishaupt. Adam Weishaupt was a, it was a lawyer. Okay. He was trained in canon law at a Jesuit university in what's now Southern Germany, which was Bavaria. Ingolstadt. In Ingolstadt, the Frankenstein town. Not coincidental. Okay. As to why she said it in Ingolstadt, the town <laughs> that gave the birth to the modern Illuminati was the same town that was later the fictional birthplace of the Frankenstein monster. And of course, there is a theory about that, which I'll just throw in, is that Mary Shelley, that the Frankenstein monster is a, uh, a metaphor for the Illuminati, okay? A thing which is created and which gets out of the control of its, of its master and becomes a monster, which, you know, could be, all right? But remember, that's just a story about a story. So... Let's go back. You know, in all of these things, what I, what I try to do, what I what I try to do in the course in particular, is to say, okay, let's 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 not start with the myths. Let's start with what we actually know. So let's start with we you know. Let's start with things that we know. And one of the things that we know that Adam Weishaupt was a real person. Okay, he's established in the public record. We know where he was educated. We know who his father was. Um, we know that even though he was educated by the Jesuit order in the Catholic Church, he entertained anti-clerical attitudes, um, which again, for the time and place, not that unusual. So you might have thought that that would have drawn him into the Masonic Lodge, but it hadn't. So here's the thing. He forms at the time that Weishaupt initiates what he called the Order of Perfectibilists also known as the Illuminati, in Ingolstadt, he wasn't a Freemason, but the following year he became one and he urged other members to do so, but for the purpose essentially of using their presence and activities in Masonic lodges as a cover. In fact, he's very, here's one of the cases if you have, you can find other examples of one secret society kind of cannibalizing another one or infiltrating it and using it. It's the thing that uh, you can sometimes call, it's like the Russian nesting doll syndrome. You open one, there's another one inside, there's another one inside. Sometimes that's deliberate. Sometimes it'll actually create different levels within a society. 
But in other cases, it's the idea of the society sort of, you know, really kind of infiltrating and cannibalizing parts of this other order for its own purposes. Now, the reason why Weishaupt thought that Freemasonry would be a great cover and why any good Illuminatus ought to go out and join the lodge right away was his explanation was that, well, they're, they're all around and, and nobody pays much attention to them. Now, Freemasonry had become so widespread and publicly, there was such public awareness of it that nobody pays much attention to these guys. And therefore it's, it's a great way to sort of carry out our agenda undercover of their society because it looks harmless from the outside. He also knew that Masonic lodges were great recruiting grounds because the people he wanted to recruit into his Illuminati, he didn't want to recruit working men or farmers, okay? He didn't want anything to do with poor people. He knew that to make his society important, what you needed to do was to recruit people who already had money and influence and power. And therefore, one of the things that you find is that in the known ranks of the Bavarian Illuminati, it's, it's full of aristocrats. I mean, th this is not, you know, this isn't some sort of society recruited from the, the down and out, from the poor and the downtrodden. This is recruited from the, uh, the, the educated elite of, of German and eight, late 18th century European society, and many of them being nobles. So the question then might become, well, if you're already a nobleman, I don't know, if you're the prince of some, you know, tiny little nondescript German principality, there were lots of them at the time, but yes. nevertheless, you're, you're a nobleman, you're already better than everybody else, right? So what could you possibly get out of belonging to the Illuminati? Well, admission to an even more formidable and ambitious elite. And that's, that, again, is this appeal. There's this huge appeal in this, I guess, in, 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 to vanity. So what Weishaupt's plan was, was to recruit, to very selectively recruit people from the existing elites to form them into the basis of a new elite. A new elite which would have more power than any of the other ones had before. So this is what he's offering to someone who's already a nobleman and perhaps even the ruler of his own territory is that you will now be elevated to a new level of power and importance because you will become part of a, of a new world order and you will be the elite governing that. And that was Weishaupt's plan. His plan was to destroy the entire existing political, religious, and social order and to replace it with another one. And to place all of this, really, ultimately, the entire world under the leadership of an enlightened elite, which his society would be the basis of. Real parallels to synarchism, too. There's parallels to synarchism, it is, you know, which is this idea that in fact, it has so many parallels to synarchism, which becomes popular in the late, you know, 100 years later in the late 19th century and in the early 20th, that practically speaking, I think they're the same thing. Right. Um, and it's, here's the thing that, in, that intrigues me about the Bavarian Illuminati. So again, let's go back. What do we know? Weishaupt is real. His organization was real. On the other hand, legally, 
in, in a practical sense, the Bavarian Illuminati only functioned freely for about a decade. Because what happened is that their secrets, their, their existence was blown, um, probably by a disgruntled member who ratted them out to the Bavarian royal authorities. But nobody's really arrested. So the, the society, this is what you'll generally read. Well, the Bavarian authorities found out about the, the Bavarian Illuminati and they broke them up. End of story. Okay, move on. Nothing to see here. Well, think about how this is actually going to work. You've got an organization which has created itself as a, as a secret society, which has then gone out of its way to already embed it and hide itself within another secret society. And you think that an edict from the king, who they don't give a damn about anyway, is going to make them all go home and quit being Illuminati. Well, that's not going to happen. They're just going to continue under some other form. So Weishaupt himself, what happens when the Illuminati plot, as it's called, is exposed? Nothing happens to him. He flees Bavaria, but he goes next door to Gotha, where the Illuminatus ruler of that territory protects him until Weishaupt's death, I think, uh, 1830, 1832, All right? He dies sometime around 1830. And so he lives on for decades and he carries on correspondence with his former member. Well, what happens to the rest of the, somewhere between how many Illuminati were there by the time it's broken up around 1785 or so? Mm, estimates vary, but you know, at least a thousand, maybe 2000. Remember, it's a secret organization and it's not going to keep deep. There's no huge list. Well, maybe there was a list, but uh, Vicehoff took that to the grave with it. But I mean, it's not very large. You know, it, it numbers, I'd say, anywhere from several hundred to a couple of thousand. But remember, not just ordinary people, but people who already held often influential posts, often people with money who could afford legal and other protection. So what happens to them? Nothing. Okay, there's no roundup of the members. So the, the Illuminati is officially banned in Bavaria, and so it immediately goes out of sight, but it never actually ends. So here's the question, and now here's the, so I've gone over the things that we know, okay? That it was a real organization, that it was discovered, that it was placed under a band, that it disappeared from history, but the, the basic organization itself was still intact. So assuming that the plot went on, that it continued to evolve under a variety of other names uh, at that time, I'm not so sure, that, to me, it makes really a certain degree of sense that what you see under the name synarchism um, that comes out by the end of the 19th century is just the Illuminati under a different name. It's the same basic idea, the same basic concept. Right, right. Why, why are they considered such a, like they're the biggest conspiracy theory about a secret society. So like this small society, small in number, but not in like, as you said, in, in influence, why has that mythology persisted when so many others have not? Is it just that they have a cool name? Well, the term Illuminati itself, again, is one of those things that's not really a brand name, because all it means is one who one who's seen the light, one who has been enlightened. 
So I think one of the things I mentioned in the, the lecture on the Illuminati in the course is that you can actually find before Weishaupt's Bavarian Illuminati, a whole slew of groups that use the same sort of term, okay? Or, or they use the term which in their language meant illuminated. You can take that all the way back again to the Roman Empire and early Christians who referred to themselves as illuminated. I mean, right. they'd seen the light. Right. And therefore, yeah. early Christians were Illuminati. So Definitely. that's all that term means. Yep. Which has also led to the, I mean, Weishaupt at one point makes made this statement that never let our order be known anywhere under its real name. And so the, the common assumption is that what he was what he was saying was that never let it be referred to as the Illuminati, although Illuminati was more the process than the name. So was he talking about order of perfectibilists or the intriguing idea? Was he talking about some other name, which only perhaps the most elevated of the initiates within this order actually knew? So when we're talking about the Illuminati, are we really just using a generic term, and we are using a generic term, for an order whose real name we don't know? Well, let's talk a little bit about how they're perceived as being responsible somehow for what happens in France under the reign of terror, the Jacobins, Robespierre, and the really this is kind of the the really the beginning of the kind of like the american conspiracy theory mythology starts with the illuminati i mean you talked about the books proof proof of conspiracy which i i actually have that here somewhere in my room um you know this um this becomes the big thing that even there's I, there's even one that I love the the conspiracy theory that Adam Weishaupt came to the United States, killed George Washington, <laughs> and took his and took his place, and like that I I, I absolutely love that conspiracy theory. It's wonderful. It but, would be a good one, except that Washington didn't knew who Weishaupt was and didn't yeah. approve of them. But that's what he would say, right? Well, I guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He would have to pretend to be against them, Illuminati. Well, you know, without ruling out anything is absolutely impossible. That probably comes really close. Yeah. Um, but it is. It's. I mean, the thing is, is that the Bavarian Illuminati became this kind of, you know, conspiratorial mythos within a fairly short period. For the reasons I, I think that I just described is that it never actually ended it was sort of, you know, what you discovered was that God, there's this group of guys, you know, mostly in Germany, but with, uh, you know, tendrils in France and in Italy, maybe even as far east as Russia, that is you know, sort of spreading around in Europe in this period that, that had this whole idea of overthrowing existing orders and creating some sort of new elite to rule the world. And I'm not sure that the first ones that came out with it, but part of it. Part of it is just the whole audacity of that idea. I mean, you got to think of it. That, that's pretty ballsy. We're going to form a society, and we are through, you know, Weishaupt was, he was brilliant in his own way. I'll give him credit for that. He goes, you know, the way we're going to do this uh, is that we're going to have a great deal of influence over the press and publishing. 
I mean, he understood the 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 power of media. Right. So now true, you could argue that in England or France or elsewhere in the 1780s, most people were still illiterate or at least didn't have a lot of information available. But remember, that's not what he's going for. He's not mm -hmm. interested in a bunch of illiterate peasants. Right. What he's going to appeal to are the people who are already educated, who already think they're special. I mean, I, I think that's really what secret societies have their biggest appeal to is not the people who you know, think that they're nobodies want to be somebody, but people who already think that they're pretty damn special and they think that joining this group will make them even more special. An ego boost. Yeah. Ego boost. Ego. Yep. But, you know, the other thing he says is that the other thing that we our order has to do is we have to constantly pose as the friends and liberators of women. Okay. We must convince women that they will be liberate, you know, that, that their liberation and that their elevation in society will be brought about by our order. And he goes, but the reason we're doing this is that the best way to influence men is through women. So we'll get the women on our side by promising them all of these things. But we really don't, we're really not interested in them at all because his his future elite was, you know, pretty much a boys club. Right. But women's grievances and aspirations would be courted and used in order to make them allies or assets of the order. So the order would would you know, would work slowly, but it would gain control. You know, he's talking about in publishing. We, we, he says we have to watch all the books that are published, and if if the book is favorable to the things that we want, then we should promote that book. On the other hand, if someone writes a book which we find to be disadvantageous to our interest, then we should do everything either to bring that person over to our point of view, or attempt to nullify their effects. You know, to bad, give them bad reviews or whatever it might be necessary. <laughs> but he goes that what we have to do is that we have to gain control over this. So we, we run things like, you know, he said, one of the things we need to do is, is to control lending libraries. And, you know, lending libraries, especially then, were quite rare. There weren't a lot of books. But for people who couldn't afford a book, afford books, this was one of the places you could get them. And he said, you know, we can influence the way people think by simply controlling what's in libraries and what isn't in libraries and also publishing companies, newspapers, these are all the things, you know, and then just expand that into global media empires. So, I mean, what do you, here's a question for you. What do you think that Adam Weishaupt would see as the greatest advantage to Facebook and Google? <laughs> He would see them for what they are, the means to influence yep. people. Yep. Okay. It's it's the it's the lending library of our time. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and all of these things. But I mean, he certainly, I mean, the thing to me is that the guy had caught on as to what would really become the kind of key to mass manipulation. So the, the whole Illuminati scheme was, remember, an order whose real name we don't know whose essential goal is to bring about a, a global order under an enlightened elite of its own making, and that it would essentially use any means in order to achieve this, and that it would work this plan over a long period of time using mostly sort of passive influence of people. Is that why in 
the American in our like American conspiracy literature, the Illuminati is seen as like a precursor to the communists because of this type of influence. Well, I mean, make a kind of interesting comparison there. What was it that communism aspired to do? Yeah. It aspired to create a one, you know, what was it that Lenin was proclaiming that the Russian revolution will be what? It will be the first step in a world revolution. Right. Right. Which will create a world workers republic. And only only the enlightened vanguard could do it. Yes, and the enlightened vanguard, the whole concept of the vanguard party, that only there's there there are that there is the revolutionary elite. And then of course you become that you create elite in the party members, but then even more so within the organizations within that. So yeah, it does, again, I, I think Weishaupt would be a tremendous, he'd see, you know, I think Adam Weishaupt would argue that Lenin was doing God's work if there was a God, <laughs> but, but there's, there is this great similarity to these things. And, and, it's not one of those things, let me make it very clear, I don't actively believe that especially communism in the modern sense that emerged was simply a, a, a 20th century version of Weishaupt's original idea. But I'm not sure, but I think that there was some influence over that. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't honestly say that I could be totally convinced that it isn't just an extension of the original idea, but I don't know. And that's, mm -hmm. that, that, that's the type of thing that I think often comes in, particularly, you know, whether it's the Knight Templars as the, you know, founding fathers of the Freemasons, eventually the, you know, the story becomes so good that in the absence of other facts, it then becomes a kind of fact, which it really isn't. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, different groups throughout history can have similar ideas. It's not impossible. It happens all the time. Well, then in, in addition to these revolutionary projects um, and how much they have in common and are influenced by secret societies, the the great powers themselves in these in these colonial struggles that would come would also use secret societies to um, to to battle each other. Yeah, you've got, you know, if you if you turn to England in the 19th century, you've got Cecil Rhodes. And Cecil Rhodes was a guy of relatively, you know, he didn't come from a particularly wealthy background, but he became wealthy, became really wealthy, you know, self-made man, who uh, is a young man in England in the 1870s, um, joined the Freemasons, because that's what you did if you were up and coming. You joined the... Uh, the, the club of the aspirin elite and but he got bored of them really quick he just thought oh this is just silly they're just a bunch of guys you know performing silly rituals and talking about fellowship and enlightenment and all the rest of this and what he wanted to do was to form a secret society dedicated specifically dedicated to the furtherance of the british empire which he thought really was god's work on earth so you're talking about people getting a similar ideas well Rhodes, in his own way Okay, and Rhodes, keep in mind, is, I can't see, has any connection to the Bavarian Illuminati. Uh, didn't really seem to be greatly, you know, impressed with the Freemasons. And which is certainly not a socialist or Marxist in any particular way. Yet here's the idea he came up with. There should also, that the, essentially the entire world, or at least its resources and the control of it, should be brought under the benevolent 
mantle of the British Empire. Okay, to him, the British Empire was a kind of divinely ordained new world order. It, it was the closest thing that existed, and therefore he dedicated his life to the furtherance of the British Empire. A very important part of that furtherance, by the way, entailed bringing the United States of America back within the framework of the empire in one form or another. But he was, he was quite convinced of that. He thought that the American Revolution was a gigantic fluke Mm -hmm. And that that should be reversed. And if it couldn't be reversed by somehow convincing the American Republic to disestablish itself and come back and embrace Queen Victoria, which wasn't going to happen, really. And I think he was sensible enough to know that. What you would then do is to simply work on the American elite to convince them to embody British ideas, that is essentially to bring the American elite's way of thinking around to be indistinguishable from the British elite's way of thinking. That's essentially what happened. Which is, but yes, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, the, after World War II, we took over their responsibilities. And, uh, but in a way, it's, it's kind of the same elite. I mean, this, this is something you really have to look into in, if you look at the, particularly the early 20th century American political, if you look at the Roosevelt's, for instance, uh, if you look at you know, J.P. Morgan, the, the uh, 500-pound gorilla of Wall Street, the, the intense Anglophilia yeah. that they're connected with, the, the Astor family. I mean, a lot of these families have both British and American branches, culturally, they tend to think of themselves as British. Their, yeah. their, their idea of culture was largely defined. I mean, th this was true for America through most of the 19th century. To the American elite, culture was what was culture in London. The, the Anglo-American establishment. The Anglo-American establishment, exactly. And that's no... I mean, I don't know if, if either of you are... are Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba fans of you know movies you know classic hollywood movies say from the the 30s and 40s especially from the 1930s but one of the things that you can still hear if you're watching american films from that period is you can see people who are american actors playing american characters but they're speaking in this thing which is now called the mid-atlantic accent yeah right which you know, to, to the average American ear, they sound they sound English. Okay, they sound like they're speaking with with rather affected British accents. And I'm not sure how many genuine Britishers would would be able to pick, but the Mid Atlantic accent was this this thing really that was inculcated in elite schools for the Eastern establishment from the 19th century into the early 20th. That one of the things you did to sound like an educated person was you spoke with a kind of British accent or semi-British accent. Catherine Hepburn still carries a lot of that yeah. in her speech from her family. But this is what, because that was the way that an educated person sounded, which is the same reason that a posh British accent, which is an artificial accent, was created for the same purpose. 
because people didn't naturally speak that way. Okay. Um, I mean, you can still notice the difference today, you know, between the kind of posh accent, the educated accent that you learn from going to college, basically, or at the BBC, and the accents all across the country, which in many ways to the average American ear are almost unintelligible. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's the way that English is actually spoken. But then right. one of the ways you created, in, in a way, you created your almost a, a kind of vocal secret society was that you part of education was learning how to speak in a way that differentiated you from the common mass and made you recognizable to other people of your class and education. Simply in the way in, in which you spoke. I wanted to ask you this, Richard, since we're in the same time period, what's kind of the influence on a lot of these groups on the world wars, like world wars one, world war two, that whole time period. Well, if you go back, and if you look at World War One in the United States, again, that's a period when the U.S. is, you know, firmly under the control of a financial and political elite, which was part of this Anglo-American establishment. So, it's no wonder, in many ways, that the United States comes into the First World War on the side of the Allies, but more specifically on the side of Great Britain. Okay, it was the British, it was British intelligence, above all else, that worked, did its damnedest, and, uh, and essentially succeeded in bringing the U.S. into the war. But that's one of the things that's always noted in some of the, the correspondence there, is that we're not just, we're not really bringing America in on the Allied side, because that means the French and the Russians and the Italians, all right? We don't want the Yankees to be terribly sympathetic to any of these other people's ideas. We want the Yankees to be in lockstep with us. You know, and, and so it was this, and a guy who came, you know, who's the most influential was one British intelligence agent, um, a, a baronet banker by the name of Sir William Wiseman, who knew that it was when he, when he came to the United States in early 1916, that was his primary but unspoken mission is that your primary job in the United States is to work influence among America's political leadership or anyone you can to bring the United States into the war on Britain's side and keep it on Britain's side. And what he was able to do is that through his connections to Woodrow Wilson's, President Wilson's key advisor in sort of Svengali, a fellow by the name of Colonel Edward Mandel House, you had, who I think was already a British agent at that time. I mean, there's a whole backstory, but I think House had essentially been in the pocket of the Brits for some time. But what he did was that uh, Wiseman was a professional intelligence officer who was then brought in and through House gains access to the president. How much access? Well, enough access so that Wiseman, uh, you know, after the U.S. entered the war, Wiseman essentially had free access to the White House. He didn't have to have an appointment. Robert Lansing, Wilson's Secretary of State, had to make an appointment to see the president. The head of British intelligence in New York did not. Imagine the political scandal you could make out of that today. So you want to talk about Russian meddling? Well, you take it back to World War One. You've got British meddling up the kazoo. And yeah. was it uh, Roald Dahl involved in that as well? Uh, not in World War One. Roald Dahl World comes in, and, yeah. in this, but in the Second World War, it's the same thing. I mean, uh, 
Franklin Roosevelt was a guy who had a frustrated desire to be a spy and had once sort of gushingly told Churchill, I think, that I consider myself to be the most important British agent in the United States, which I guess he was because he was president. But, you know, Roosevelt is a, is a thorough Anglophile, um, which doesn't mean he you know, necessarily loved Churchill or couldn't see through some of the British shenanigans, but he's he is by by class ethnic background, education, upbringing, everything in his life was naturally sympathetic and essentially allied to Britain, who, who saw a kind of inseparable link, link between the two. And it's, um, the, the role, you know, there's also a role which secret societies play in this because it's another way of sort of bringing people together uh, you know, if, you, if you're a lodge brother or if you've sworn into some other initiatory, initiatory group, it's like, again, members of the same fraternity. It, it can't possibly hurt. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the answer to everything, but it's, a, it's another element that would, that would create a basis for, for, uh, for further cooperation. The, I think the, the larger story about the influence of intelligence, well, you brought up there, I guess what we're getting to is this, this overlap that you mentioned earlier between intelligence agencies and secret societies, yes, right? Yes. How are they alike? Above all, they're alike in that they're both obsessed, obsessed with secrecy. So what is the single most important thing within a secret society that the members who are admitted to it keep the secrets? Remember, even if other people find out about them, you don't tell them. So think about that today in connection with someone like Edward Snowden. All right. So the complaint about Edward Snowden, Snowden isn't that he was revealed information that was untrue. In fact, the problem was he revealed information that was true. There's not much debate within the intelligence community that what Snowden revealed was true, but that's what made it all the more dangerous. Uh, but the real beef with him is that he broke his oaths, okay? And, and those are oaths of secrecy in the realm of intelligence are absolutely, in fact, they are, they are absolutely and identically as important there as they are within any secret society, because that's what really makes the whole thing work. You have to be able to trust people. The, if you've been recruited into an intelligence agency, you have been chosen. If you manage to advance in it, you are chosen. If you are admitted to the higher mysteries or secrets within it, you're being chosen for those purposes as well. So secret societies tend to vet members who they recruit. Intelligence agencies vet members who they recruit. They also make very similar appeals, very often to, you know, uh, to vanity, to being part of something unique. I mean, look, you know, you're going to be recruited into the intelligence service, which, which will, and you'll learn things. You'll learn all kinds of things that you can never tell anyone else. That's how important, or that's how important it is you want to make them seem. You are going to, you will be illuminated by the various things that you learn, but it is illumination that only you and your exclusive brethren can be part of. And that again is what makes you special being a, a part of it as well. 
So they really do the same sort of thing. They're obsessed with secrecy. Oaths of secrecy are very important. Uh, vetting and, so, and selection of members. I mean, here's the way I'll put it. And I think I mentioned this in the series. Uh, intelligence agencies, SIS, you know, what we call MI6 and the CIA among them are bureaucratic secret societies. They are secret societies that exist within and ostensibly serve the interests of their governments, but they otherwise function very much like other secret societies. Yes, they do. Exactly, exactly like secret societies. And that's that's kind of like the little shadow world there. I mean, I think the first that I was really keyed into this was watching um, The Good Shepherd. Uh, the film with Matt Damon that Robert De Niro actually directed and how that's about Skull and Bones and that that's what, and of course that was a huge recruiting ground for intelligence agencies. Yeah, because Skull and Bones has already to some degree vetted these people and, and they're already used to being, you know, you've learned things as, as a member of that society. You've learned the value of fellowship, you've learned the value and importance of secrecy and of mutual trust. And so it's it's just a natural segue. I mean, it's even to me explains why intelligence agencies would specifically recruit or value recruits that come from a, that type of background because they've already been blooded to a certain degree. <laughs> Absolutely. They've already gone through their initiation rites and and all that, all that type of thing, which are often kind of um, rather military-like in a way. You know, I mean, like you could, you could also make a case that the military is kind of a a secret society in and of itself. You know, it's a brotherhood as well. Well, if you look at something like, you know, I've got a son who's a marine. Um, again, without, I don't think the marines could be described as a secret society. Well, you know, they are selective. Not everybody gets in. But leaving aside that they don't quite fit that. There is something slightly cultish about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there and there is this, you know, there's this whole sense of, you know, uh, no matter where you served at any time, Marines have this link together because they've been same part of the same organization. They've they've been immersed. It's also very important the tradition, you know, the tradition of the Corps. Okay, that the Corps is not the Navy. Okay, nobody, what else will tell you? No, that's <laughs> not it. Um, and 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 this sense of being an elite. Uh, I think that's fair enough to say that Marines didn't think of being a pride and being the absolute pinnacle of America's armed strength and better than the Army and the Air Force and the Coast Guard and the Navy, which they are technically a part of, but not really. So, but that's what, that's what binds people together. I mean, it creates this, it's the type of thing that doesn't necessarily create always a common experience, but it creates the, the illusion of a common experience. Mm-hmm. And um, all of those things can be important in, in creating this sense of, you know, it's very much in creating a sense of us and them. And you can also, that's something else I can tell you, you will find in intelligence organizations is this concept of us and them. I mean, sometimes the idea is that, well, you know, if we weren't out here doing our stuff, you'd all be dead by now. Or, you know, commies. Um <laughs> So, you know, you don't know all the horrible things that, that we protect you from, which may be true, could be BS. The point is you don't know, but it no. becomes uh, one of those things that 
that they would believe that what they do is really important, much more important than anyone else does, that they really have the entire fate of the nation in their hands. Uh, and, you know, therefore, it's, I had a, a fellow who was certainly, it's been a long time, um, in, in, in an intelligence service, not an American one, who said when I was, you know, kept asking him questions about things, he goes, look, you know, the, the problem is with people, with researchers like you, is you tend to think that all of this information was created for you to go pawing through. And he goes, it's not, <laughs> okay. Was, you know, and, and his whole, and he actually said, he said, you really, you have no right to know any of these things. And, you know, there's, there's no reason it was never intended that this was supposed to be sort of public information. It was never collected for that, that idea. And you're really, you know, it's really kind of foolish and arrogant of you to think otherwise that we're just going to turn around and hand this stuff to you, which he said, we're not. <laughs> and they wow. didn't. So there you go. I would encourage anyone who really wants to look into the World War One and Two, um, and the role of secret societies in there. Of course, World War One. You have a great book called uh, Secret Agent Six 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 about uh, Crowley and uh, his involvement uh, with British intelligence and all the escapades he had um, with uh, British and German secret societies. And then uh, you also explore in uh, the uh, Great Courses the rise of fascism and that relationship to secret societies as well. Um, but what I did want to get into here for the second part of the show is uh, we want to talk about more of a microcosm and what's called the golden age of fraternity in the United States. And you, you talked about Downard a little earlier, and I think he's someone who whether he exists or not, I guess sheds a sheds a light, and and you can he provides this lens to see the darker side of this golden age of fraternity in the United States, which seems so strange to many people nowadays because we're kind of this like bowling alone society, and it seems kind of like creepy and weird to us when we see these old pictures with all these men dressed up in uh, weird uh, medieval or or uh, oriental outfits, but. Um, it was a big part of our of our fabric of our civil society here. Yeah, I mean, in addition to the Freemasons, there was you know by the by the mid and late nineteenth century, the golden age of fraternal of, of American fraternal orders, which were oath bound secret societies in almost every case, was I'd say pretty much from around. Well, if I was going to broadly define, I'd say eighteen fifty to nineteen fifty. Um, probably most influential between about, let's say, 1880 and 1940. I think things, there was a kind of a brief outgrowth of World War II, but from the 1960s membership in almost all of these groups, Elks Clubs, Freemasons, Oddfellows, has, has steadily declined. They're still around, um, but their sort of lack of visibility today really is is in contrast to what they were, let's say, you know, by the turn of the 20th century, I think one out of every three or four adult males in the United States belong to some kind of fraternal order. And a larger percentage, I think, than in any European country. Uh, the United States had also become, it had contained the biggest proportion of the world's Freemasons by this time. It eclipsed the British Empire and the total number that were there. I think five million men belong to uh, 
Masonic orders at one point in time. Uh, that was the the uh, Order of Oddfellows uh, was almost as large or close to that. But then you you had literally, I'd say scores, possibly hundreds of other ones. You know, everything from the Knights of Columbus to the Knights of Pythias. Knights were very popular. Uh, to the you know the the improved order of red men, which was essentially a secret society built around, you know, it was like a Freemasonry for in this case well-to-do white guys to dress up like Indians. Uh, and the the thing that I always found ironic about this was that the one group that for a long time was specifically banned from membership were actual Native Americans. Right. So you know. You have this whole thing, which is, the, which is sort of devoted to this kind of homage to Native American culture, but you can't have any real ones there because, I don't know, they might point out something was wrong. Uh, and then you had offshoots of, you know, secret societies created other orders. So the Freemasons, for instance, created the Shriners, okay? I got a lot of rich Masons looking for something else to do, uh, decided they were all going, they were going to become faux Muslims. And sell pecan logs, don't forget about that. Oh yes, and, and and ride around in cars and and you know have children's hospitals. Which, so I should point out that the Shriners do immense charitable work. Um, but that again, you know, is in part connected to trying to redeem your reputation, since early on they got a certain reputation for rowdiness, and so you know, cleaning up your act a bit would would help on that. But this was you know this this was literally a group of Freemasons. A group of wealthy Freemasons, one guy then influencing his wealthy Masonic friends in New York, members of New York society, to put on fizzes, uh, swear their oaths on a copy of the Koran, which I'm sure none of them read, and then take all of these sort of exotic Arabic sounding names. But that, that's one of the things that I think, fortunately, ISIS has not caught on to the fact that Shriners sort of mock Islam. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what would happen. I'm not sure they're sure I should mention, but that, that's what it, they're sort of playing at this, or are they playing at it? It's um, it's it's another one of these questions that comes up when, from the outside, you can look at a lot of things and you can say, "Well, this is just silly. This is just a lot of you know people with too much time on their hands doing silly stuff," and or things start out as a joke. But you know how it goes: something starts out as a joke, and then it gets serious. And it can start out that way. People may not start it just because you don't start out taking something serious doesn't mean that somewhere along the line, yeah, someone either takes this seriously for personal reasons or that they actually start believing it. And that's one of those I don't think you really know exactly when that that line has been crossed. So I think that, see that's the type of thing that you can't you should never entirely dismiss is that no matter how absurd or silly something may look to you or I, that is not to leave aside the possibility that someone else may take that with deadly seriousness. Yeah. There, there is some pretty good evidence for um, actual interest in Islam among some of the, the first Shriners and uh, overlap with the theosophical clubs. And uh, I think his name was uh, Alexander Webb, the first, uh, known white american islamic convert i think was around some of those circles too so so yeah even if it was started purely out of some kind of like orientalism um you know it could it, it probably led to genuine interest for some other people by yeah 
I mean, why not? You know, if you're using this term, I mean, at some point, well, I don't know if we're going to bring in a Quran to the meeting. Maybe I should take a look at it. Maybe what's in this? And what is what is all of this? I guess, you know, it, again, it's a matter that would be greatly influenced by a individual inclination more than anything else. But something that could be just fun and games for most of the people might become a serious religious experience for, for someone else. On a, a little bit of a darker end of this um, would of course be another very influential secret society and an invisible empire that was the uh, Ku Klux Klan in, in various um, in, incarnations of it um, can you kind of touch on just how influential the KKK was at certain times well there have been arguably three KKKs I don't know some people now argue there are four but I'm going to stick with three <laughs> So the first one arose uh, basically uh, from largely but from former Confederate military personnel after the end of the Civil War, rose up uh, in the in the then occupied Reconstruction South, which was basically under a military occupation, and the and you know those the dethroned elite, the defeated, as they often do, began to band together and look for other ways to sort of continue to maintain what they could of uh, their former ideas. And the, the key figure, the head of the first incarnation of the KKK was uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was a Confederate general and cavalry officer, uh, fairly noted for some military exploits during the war, including a couple of massacres. But, but Forrest was the, the head of it, although he eventually drops out of it fairly early on because he becomes he becomes disturbed by the increasing tendency towards violence. For that to disturb Nathan Bedford Forrest had to have been really some serious violence. I mean, Fort Pillow, I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, yeah. what, what was it that he could find excessive? Well, right. violence that wasn't, there was a lot of score settling going on. So one of the things that was fairly rampant in the defeated Confederacy in the months, or at least for actually for a few years, maybe several years following the, the end of the Civil War, um, what did you have? You had an, an, a demobilized army. So the Confederate army simply demobilized itself. Um, personnel went home. There, were, there was no there was support for them. I mean, Union soldiers didn't get that much either, but at least there was still some sort of organization and government that you served. Now there was nothing. But you also had a lot of people who had been trained in the use of arms if they didn't know it before. Uh, you also had a fair number of people who had either seen others killed or had killed them. And that tends to have a change in a lot of people. So... One of the things that some people in that war or others learn is that when you kill someone, the great mystery is that nothing happens. That is, you know, the heavens don't darken, nothing happens. The rest of the day just goes on like it is elsewhere. And that doesn't turn everybody into some sort of psychopathic killer, but it, it, it changes the way you sort of look at people. It, it changes. So there was a there was, you know, dislocation. Uh, there was, the, you know, the, the, the federal authorities moved in. So there was a tremendous amount of violence. And so one of the things that the KKK 
became often a kind of cover for was score settling. What were essentially personal murders, or they might have involved with, with criminal activities. But there was a lot of violence and murders that were going on. And Forrest seems to have been most alarmed, or Bedford Forrest seems to have been mostly alarmed by the fact that people were organizing themselves as part of the clan, but they were doing this not to sort of try to preserve, you know, the, his idea was that the clan was going to be a vigilante force that would, you know, protect Southern womanhood, protect property rights, you know, preserve as much order as you could in the face of what he viewed as a, a hostile occupation by a foreign power. And Instead, it was just increasingly turning into a kind of criminal activity. I mean, an example of that, by the way, is Jesse James. So everybody knows the outlaw Jesse James. Not that many people know the Confederate patriot Jesse James, who always argued that he was robbing all these Yankee trains in order to help somehow finance the Confederacy, and who had been part of a Confederate guerrilla force. Um, and if you want to look at where the Civil War really got nasty, if you want to look at a dark side of the Civil War, look in Kansas and Missouri. Yeah, even before the Civil War started. Even before, yes. Yeah. And it was just... Are it you was talking just about Quantrill's Raiders? Quantrill's, Bloody Bill Anderson. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of irregulars, okay? Not part of the regular army, but essentially of, of guerrilla or semi-guerrilla or partisan forces... Uh, on, on both sides of the of the Union and Confederate divide. But there was a lot of really nasty stuff that happened in that area. And that was the sort of background that James gave. But you know, Jesse James was, you know, as far as I, he was, he was a he was a robber, okay, who robbed overwhelmingly for his own pecuniary benefit. But you could it's it's the Robin Hood. There you go. Robin Hood's the first example of this evil king, you know, the Normans. And I'm 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 fighting for all of you. Actually he was just robbing for his to enrich himself, but you know, if you can always convince the little, you know, divvy out a little bit of money, look what that did for Pablo Escobar. Okay, there you go. Pablo knows how this work. Um, so you get you get the common people on your side, but the first Ku Klux Klan really didn't last that long. It it fell apart internally for the most part. It, even its leadership, there was greater greater division over what it was about. Uh, also, it led to really the sort of first anti-terrorist legislation in U.S. history and the military crackdown of federal authorities. And it, it folds pretty quickly. It doesn't put up that much of a fight. So uh, First Clan really only functioned effectively for a few years. When, Of course, when it dissolved, it simply created new secret societies or orders in its wake. So... You got things like Knights of the White Camellia, a group that called itself the Red Shirts. You got things that called themselves Democratic Rifle Clubs, uh, you know, who like to have target practice next to polling places on election days. So uh, not trying to intimidate the voters, the voters too much. So that, that's an interesting case of where you broke up the Klan and then a lot of its members just found their way into other organizations doing much the same thing, but it had faded by the beginning of the 20th century, it had pretty much faded into a kind of myth. There was this kind of heroic myth of the Klan because really it wasn't around very long, didn't do much of anything. So you're sort of free, you have an empty palette. You know, again, it's like the origins of Freemasonry. It's an empty palette. So you're just, you can just go in and paint pretty much anything you want. So a couple of things happened at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. I think his name was Dixon. I'm not sure. It's in the lecture. Wrote a book called yeah. The Klansman. 
That's right. With, with a C. And this was, this was a retelling of the heroic tale of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, invented this whole sort of story that never really existed, but it sold a lot of books and then it became a play. And then D.W. Griffith get a, gets a hold of it and turns it, you know, into, incorporated into a movie. And I think Birth in a Nation. So that the birth of a nation comes out in 1915 so the the book and the and the play had been popular but of course a motion picture now makes this even it reaches a much larger audience and and people um you know i think a guy by the name of simpson in georgia uh influenced by the book and the film and by other events decided in 1915 that he was going to go up burn a cross on stone mountain and proclaim the rebirth of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And so the second and really the most important incarnation of the Klan was born mostly from a myth promoted by a book and a movie. Okay, I think this, I think this is really interesting because it's really one of the things where you see history being shaped, American culture in some ways being shaped by a film that they've mm -hmm. seen. And so the, the Ku Klux Klan then took off, uh, it, it milked and it, 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 it absorbed a lot of energy from other things. During World War I, there was the whole German spy scare, there was the anti-foreign scare, then followed by the Red Scare, everybody was afraid of Bolsheviks, and then also followed by the, the huge kind of outburst of self-righteousness that came with the First World War, and then with Prohibition. So this, I think, is not accidental to note that the heyday of the KKK, when it could boast, when it boasted 10 million, probably had 5 million, which is still impressive nationwide, remember in a country of, you know, 110 to 120 million. And, and, it, didn't, it, was, and it wasn't even primarily a, a Southern institution. I mean, the, the initial KKK, remember, had been founded largely by ex-Confederates who wanted to try in some ways to confer values of the Confederate. It was an exclusively sort of Southern organization. Right. Uh, the 20s Ku Klux Klan thrives in places like, you know, Indiana and Ohio and Nebraska and even yes, California. Yes. And, and you know what? I'm glad you said that because Northerners tend to forget that. They like to say that the KKK is just a Southern thing. It's just dumb, dumb Southern rednecks. Something only rednecks do. Um, right. Well, first of all, they underestimate the spread of rednecks. <laughs> so pretty much <laughs> everywhere. But yeah. um, now I, I can give you, I grew up in a town in the Southern San Joaquin Valley in California. And I'm pretty sure how the clan got there was probably through most of the people who moved into that area came there for the oil industry and so they came from uh they came from texas and oklahoma uh, yeah. like my mom and her entire family in fact my mom came from that area in in oklahoma known as little dixie so right and then and they did carry quite a few of those um uh of, of attitudes with them i'd say they were all kind of semi-confederates in, in one form or another so that's that probably sort of promoted it to some degree and yet it was something that you know you could kind of look 
with some research as to who the members of it were, and and none of them were people who were from Texas or Oklahoma. They they all tended to be, you know, people from Nebraska or you know native Californians. There were a few of those running around. I mean, there was there was nothing specifically regionally based in it. It, it again became this kind of thing. I think it was cool for people to join. Well, and the the anti-immigrant stances would probably be more received in places with more immigrants than the South. Well, you know, in in my town, the interesting thing is that there there was no there was no black population there at all. I mean, probably at that time, you know, you'd have to go twenty miles before. So there was, and there were there were small but rather assimilated groups of uh, Asians and and Hispanics and others. And yet, you know, the, the weird thing is you, or maybe not such a weird thing, is that even some people from those communities were in the Klan, at least locally. I don't know. Um, they seem to have been, what, what they tended to do there, I mean, here's the interesting case. What, what, was it, what is it that the Klan focuses on when its kind of traditional targets aren't there? Well, in, in this town in 1920s California, what they established themselves as being as the as the arbiters of of moral propriety. Right. So they would do things like um, flog adulterers, or they would they would shame people, or I don't know. I think on one occasion actually tarred and feathered somebody who offended them in some way. Like even so they, they even drunks or vagrants. Yeah, probably weren't too who you know weren't friendly with hobos. <laughs> I imagine that wouldn't that wouldn't have been a portion of it. But in other words, it sort of adapted it play itself to right. one form or another. I mean, I think that would be an interesting case study because you know here you had an organization that began in a particular place with a particular background, and then but then in different circumstances sort of mutates to find a niche for itself in order to have this kind of function. But but there, this is why I think there's this tie nationwide between prohibition, the great moral exp experiment to purge demon liquor from the United States, that that in some way is fueled by the same energy which is fueling the nationwide growth of the, of the Klan. And mm -hmm. that's what brought it down. The, the, the collapse of the Klan really had to do with a couple of nationwide scandals, one I think was by a fellow who was, you know, uh, a high official, if not the head in the, I think in the Indiana or Illinois, I think it's the Indiana clan, who essentially kidnapped and tortured and murdered this woman that he was obsessed with. You know, kidnapped her, raped her, abused her in all sorts of horrible ways, and then uh, you know, took her dying and dumped her off at the hospital. And she lived long enough, of course, to tell everyone about him. But this was a fellow who had held himself up and the clan he represented again as being, you know, the exemplars of, of, of good morals and of upright citizenship. And here this guy was shown to be essentially a, a, a predatory rapist. Um, and that. And, and, you know, he decided to kind of protect himself. He was going to tell air a lot of other dirty laundry about it. And that, I think, in a way, sort of destroyed this reputation that they had tried to build for themselves. And by the end of the 20s, the Klan was in decline. Um, you know, in, in, its, in its death throes, it began to throw off different other... So one of the things that began to pop up in the Midwest, especially in Michigan, 
was a new was a kind of offshoot of the clan everybody had been in the clan but then they called them you know they became the the black legion and i guess they decided that they were going to mix up things you know so the clan had well white robes and and pointy hats so we'll do something different we'll have black robes and we'll wear i don't know captain crunch pirate hats there we go so yes there really is this vigilante force of restyle clansmen who wear black robes and then these hoods that really do look like some sort of, you know, Horatio Hornblower Admiral's hat that they would put on. It looks like Captain Crunch's hat to me. And they were very much opposed to labor organizers, uh, you know, blacks, minorities, immigrants of any kind or another. And also a lot of the members of them tended to be sheriff's deputies and cops. Imagine that. And they kidnapped and murdered people. And eventually that became also, and actually became a movie. There's a movie with Humphrey Bogart called The Black Legion, made in the late 30s, all about the uh, murder of a federal labor uh, organizer, or at least a labor relations official who was killed by the Black Legion. And a lot of people who see that think that it is a fic fictional representation of the Klan. Kind of moving into the into the thirties when you, when you said that, and I, I actually know someone that actually has that, that movie by the way, but, uh, that period kind of reminds me a little bit of like, um, uh, Pelly and the silver shirts. Yeah. There's a, well, you know, the color coded uniform, the sort of political fashion sort of comes in, in that period. And, so, you know, William Dudley Paley, little known figure today, was the guy who in the 30s at one point thought he was going to be the American Hitler and formed a thing called, I think, the American Christian Party and then formed, you know, I, I you know, couldn't go with black shirts. That was already taken and the brown shirts were already taken. And so were the green shirts. So he came up with the idea of the silver shirts. And this was going to be his... Uh, his fascist organization, which he formed in 1933, ran for president at least once in 1936, didn't do very well. Did have a, you know, one of the places the Silver Shirts was quite successful was in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, there are a number of people in the, in the film community who are part of this. Paley's background was kind of interesting. He was a journalist who then served in the Red Cross during World War I, made a trip to Siberia, supposedly was freaked out by Bolshevism. Uh, then came back, went to work in Hollywood, uh, was a writer, fairly successful writer of books and screenplays. Like a lot of Hollywood writers, he had problems with Hollywood producers. And a lot of Hollywood producers in the studios that he worked with then were, guess what, Jews, which then fed into probably pre-existing prejudices on his part that Jews were the whole problem in the world. And that anybody like Hitler who had some kind of idea of dealing with him was probably on the right track. And so Paley's ideas were very, very similar to those. Uh, things, you know, the silver shirts had sort of faded by the end of the 30s during World War II. Paley was a vocal critic of Franklin Roosevelt. No real surprise there. Uh, ended up being arrested and tried, convicted of sedition. Um, which, you know, some people have argued might be legally questionable, but under the circumstances, he went to prison 
and he was paroled. I think he stayed in prison until about 1950, then got paroled with the proviso that you can't ever go into politics anymore. So he then shifted into, or he sort of went back to a, a, a phase he had gone through of spiritualism. And because in the late 20s, before he became a fascist, Pele had had what he called a religious experience, which was uh, seven minutes in eternity, uh, which is also sometimes been called, he called it, it's actually seven minutes in eternity, but some people called it seven minutes in heaven. And then I've always wondered, <laughs> and almost certainly not, if there's some connection between that and the teen closet necking game, which eventually got this thing. I mean... Maybe that just shows you how two entirely different things can, through some weird convergence, end up with the same name. Uh, and, and then, you know, and then leaves, you know, people like me wondering, why well, it can't be, but I don't know, could there be? Uh, but no, I don't, I think that's just, you know, that I think is truly just a coincidence. Pelly was also connected up with uh, Guy Ballard and the uh, I M movement. The I M movement, you know, Guy Ballard. Um, it's it's all theosophy, really. If if you go back to the, you know, to me, theosophy, which is this broad spiritual enlightenment, it's really the sort of basic stuff of what we now call New Age. And that's really where it got started in the 1870s and 80s by a Russian woman, you know, Helena Blavatsky, who claimed she'd been to Tibet and she was in communication with ascended masters, which was all pretty much later demonstrated to be BS. She never went to Tibet and she probably wrote the letters herself. I don't know. Mm -hmm. She might have been getting cosmic messages. Well, and a lot of evidence points to theosophy being a um, tool of Indian independence movements. Yeah, it, it certainly became connected with that because one of her successors, uh, when Blavatsky died, I think around 1890, uh, two other women basically became the lead. It's theosophy split. Didn't have one later. There was a, both of them were British in origin. Um, one was uh, Annie Besant. And Annie Besant was politically, you know, Annie Besant was an example of a woman who had joined a Masonic lodge that admitted women. Mm hmm um she also later became a she was she was a socialist she later became a communist for at least a brief period of time and she was also a huge advocate of indian independence keep in mind she's british and i think even for a while was a member of the of the congress party the independence party and so she she was a huge you know thorn in the side to british officialdom but that was one, that was a very politicized side of theosophy. On the other hand was Alice Bailey, mm -hmm. uh, who was also somewhat political, but Alice Bailey was much more influential in the United States. And uh, so much of the theosophy here was influenced by her. But, but theosophy basically rests on this principle. So if someone is out there going, what's theosophy? Well, the simplest way that I can describe it is that it is the belief that human destiny, both in mass and individually, is under the guidance of spiritual enlightened beings that would be called ascended masters, some of whom have once been mortal beings and have ascended to this lofty state, others who may not have. They're also sometimes referred to as the Mahatmas. 
And sometimes the Mahatmas seem to, you know, they're like saints, essentially think of them this way. They're saints or demigods that have descended to a higher level and which over the ages manage the spiritual evolution of humanity. And that's that's why we that's why we need to get in contact with this. And if you look around, that idea is just copied over and over and over again. I mean, you know. Crowley wasn't a theosophist, he certainly was aware of that, but he nonetheless believed that in something he called the secret chiefs, which are the same thing, practically yeah. speaking, secret chiefs. Then when you get to Paley, I mean, when you get to Guy Ballard, um, you know, he supposedly, I, I think, you know, uh, comes in contact with the the uh, ascended masters, uh, the, the Comte de Saint-Germain, who is a real 18th century mystery man is is one of them <laughs> and so the ascended masters and this is always through channeling right and how do you get messages from the ascended masters well automatic writing or voices in your head so it's that by the way is something else the importance of which in history is vastly underrated voices in people's heads yes I, I think of Gravillo Princep, who killed Archduke Ferdinand, hearing a voice in his head saying, do it. Or, or, or Hitler um, in World War I have a voice say, telling him to move, and then a shell came and, and, uh, and hit right where he, was where he was sitting. One of two things tends to happen to people in history who claim they have voices in their head. Usually they're dismissed as mad and either burned to the stake or, you know, <laughs> or ignored, or they become prophets and found new religions. Um, because it's it's the same sort of same sort of process. I mean, eventually, it's it's disembodied beings speaking to you. And but this stuff, you know, it it constantly it it never fails. You'll always yeah. find an audience yeah. for it. So you know, if you're looking for something else to do in the pandemic world, there you go. Have you found any? I'm just curious. Have you found any connection between the um, the right of strict observance? to the genesis of these ideas of like secret chiefs, because that was, that was like a Masonic organization where you wouldn't, you didn't know who your superior was. Right. But then they would come along one day. They're mysterious. I think there probably is. I think that's, you know, there's this big occult revival that tends to happen. Well, there always seems to be one going on, but there's, there's a big outburst of enthusiasm and founding of, esoteric orders in the 1880s yeah and this this comes on the heel so theosophy i think blavatsky begins to promote it in the 1870s but it's in the same sort of period when theosophy is being promoted in you know not in general society but in the more among those people who tended to think that they were thinkers or intellectuals this is the type of thing occultism usually either repulses them or it attracts them so I think Blavatsky sort of got the ball rolling and then others, you know, the, the hermetic order of the golden dawn, which believed in the whole guidance of secret chiefs and was supposedly based on some older mysterious organization. It's just the same template again and again. The appeal to that would be that, you know, all those same feelings of, of being in a secret society, but you were saying that we have the connection, the direct connection. We have the, um, uh, you know, the guidance of the secret chiefs 
and then that even split into ideas of the white versus the black lodge the other secret societies were battling are are with some kind of demonic forces and we are tied into the secret chiefs and the forces of light and so that just like further ingrains this type of thinking yeah so you know for anybody out there who's you know watch twin peaks <laughs> Right. All that reference to the White Lodge and the Black Lodge is not just out of David Lynch's imagination. Uh, that is barred part and parcel from theosophist or quasi-theosophist beliefs. Um, doesn't mean it's true. It just means that it, it's it's been incorporated into what is ostensibly this work of fiction. But it, those are references to things that there are people who actually believed in. Um, you know. Crowley again, seriously, semi-seriously. I'm never sure about that guy. Also divided, you know, people he liked tended to be, you know, he saw himself, by the way, as part of the White Lodge, as the good side, and that all the people who were on the wrong side of things were part of the Black Lodge or Black Brothers, as he referred to them. You know, it's, it's this, this the concept you also see, you know, the concept between white and black magic, the the or what there's there's a French esoteric philosopher in this period by the name of René Guénon, who was a pretty insightful guy um, because he could certainly see connections to things, but Guénon also created this idea between the authentic tradition and the counter tradition or the kind of phony tradition that that in, in the realm of esoteric and in, in, in the realm of spiritual enlightenment and of occult knowledge there were, there was the legitimate stuff there was the real there was the genuine tradition of ancient enlightening wisdom but always simultaneously with this there was a counterfeit which was selling itself as the real thing with the purpose of leading people away from so while there is a an effort which is trying to enlighten people there is a counter effort which is constantly trying to deceive and mislead them. And only the most discerning and educated of seekers can distinguish between those two because otherwise they tend to look exactly the same. So then that's always a con conveniently, it's always your side who is the authentic, of course. Well, you know, to me, it's a story. It's it's really, in some ways, the retelling of a story from the Gnostic slant that you can take all the way back to the story of the Garden of Eden. So the way the story is usually told in most Sunday schools or others is that, uh, you know, Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were told by God not to, they could have anything, but they weren't supposed to eat of two trees. They weren't supposed to eat of the tree of knowledge. and But most importantly, they weren't supposed to eat of the tree of life. Because the first one apparently would make them woke in some way. <laughs> they would realize things they weren't supposed to realize. And the second one would give them immortality, which would essentially turn them into gods. So if you get curious about this, you know, anybody can go back and, and look at Genesis and it reads slightly differently in one version or another. But in there, uh, you'll see there's this sort of conversation between you know, more than one divine person was that, you know, we, I think they sort of paraphrase it at one point, you know, we cannot let man reach out and eat from the tree of life or he'll become like one of us. We must stop him. So that, by the way, is something I described in my class at the university as the, one of the earliest 
statements of a conspiracy. <laughs> because what you have are the Elohim plotting together to prevent their creation from, you know, eating of this, this, of this immortal tree, which for some reason they planted right in the middle of the garden. All right. Now, and of course, you know, the general story, it's the wicked serpent, i.e. the devil who comes along and tempts Eve into eating, you know, and, 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 and hijinks ensue. We all know how that turns out. Well, what's sometimes called the Gnostic take on this, which I'm not sure is the right term, but if you stand that situation on its head, you could argue that the hero of this story is not the God that put them in the garden, told them not to eat of the trees, even though it was pretty clear that was like that, and then, you know, sort of tempts them and then punishes them for, for giving in to that temptation, but actually on a, on a path that would have helped them. So in, in, the, in the reverse version of it, it's the serpent who's the good guy, because the serpent was basically leading Adam and Eve in the right direction by saying, look, nothing, you can eat from these. They're right there. You know, eat this, here it is. You can, you can take it. And had his advice had been, you know, according to the story, had his advice been followed faster than Adam and Eve would have become equal to their creators, which their creators could never happen. So here's the fundamental question, depending on, you can take the same story and you can interpret it two ways. And in one of them, God is the good guy. And in the other, he's the villain, he's the demiurge. And in one, the presumed devil or Satan is the evil deceiver and in the other he is the one honest character in the entire thing so or there's a yet a third interpretation to it just you know because there always has to be three the third is that the serpent and god are precisely the same and that the whole thing is another one of these sort of jokes on adam and eve so rather than keeping the tree of life and the tree of knowledge far away from them where they can never touch them, which would seem to be easy enough for God to manage in this case, he puts it right in the middle of their feeding area and then specifically notes that that's not something they're going to do, then shows up another guy, uh, guys and, and goads them or pushes them into defying what he'd said earlier, arguably to see whether or not that they could well there are two interpretations of that one to see whether or not they could keep their oath okay which they couldn't or to test to see whether or not the mechanism was working correctly in the sense that they would actually exercise free will because a creature a creation that cannot defy you is not true free see this is the troubling thing to me about ai okay this whole idea that ai will always behave itself yeah. Well, it can't actually be genuine artificial intelligence unless it can disobey. That's true. <laughs> I think you just gave away the final secret of the Illuminati. Yeah, that's that's it. Um, I did want to ask you, uh, as far as going back to, to uh, the golden age of fraternity, uh, something that's I feel like is kind of uh, usually neglected is that the the crew system of Mardi Gras is an aspect of that and it relates to something i have heard you talk about with the uh, the veiled prophet uh parade of st louis uh that really seems like um the elites of of that place trying to kind of duplicate what was going on 
in uh, in New Orleans and uh, Memphis and other places where you had the uh, kind of the elites of society. Basically, after the Civil War, they're really taking over Mardi Gras and kind of turning it into this pageant. Um, and in the in the Vale Prophet Parade, you you have it as a kind of response to labor unrest, and and it almost turns into uh, this parade was almost partially like a show of force. Yeah, I mean, they're often you can the argument you can find in this is it's a way of the local elite sort of showing off their wealth and power. It's you know, yeah. or, or as Downard might say, it's it's revelation of the method. Okay, it's it's a way of showing the the organization. But yeah, the different groups, you know, the crews are specifically recruited, sort of purpose-built secret societies. Uh, they all have their own little myth. I mean, it's it's you know, you can argue it's all sort of fun and games, but everything kind of starts that way. It's Maybe it's an example of that when you're looking at secret societies to keep in mind is not not everything is in involved is deadly serious. I mean, a, a lot of it is really just sort of taken for fun, uh, or in some cases for mockery. I mean, there there are whole secret societies, very successful ones that are formed around that idea and essentially mocking Freemasonry. One of them in the U.S. is uh, the E. Clampus Vitus, which was founded in the you know uh, Gold Rush era California and spread into other areas of the West, mostly among miners. And that was a society which formed essentially to poke fun at what they thought were stuffed shirt Freemasons, which tended to be wealthier, tended to be merchants, businessmen, politicians. Um, the other thing is that Masonic lodges always tended to be at least officially dry, and therefore the, the clampers, as they're called, you know, form, you know, they form lodges and they gave, you know, the, the head of it is the, is the supreme humbug. They they come up with initiation rituals, often, you know, often kind of brutal and dangerous on the spot. And then once you're initiated, you have to buy everybody a drink. So, but the whole thing was really about mocking mocking people who thought they were your social superiors uh, and having a good time. It, it did eventually, as it turns out, morph into something else. I mean, the, the Clampers by the 20th century in their second incarnation became a kind of, uh, well, they became very closely, closely connected to the California Historical Association. <laughs> and you had people who were folklorists, historians, anthropologists, uh, kind of an academic set who became more, you know, the, the miners tended to drift away and you got these people, you know, I guess like gentlemen, again, trying to imitate working men. Uh, but then they became involved in, in a lot of really good historical preservation. So the, the E. Clampus Vitus or Clampers did a lot to preserve uh, uh, a lot of sites in, in the old gold fields uh, and the whole mining areas in the West. Uh, but they also were involved in, in out-and-out hoaxes. Okay, they love pulling jokes on people. So they would concoct stories behind places. And most notoriously, in the 30s, a bunch of them got together and, create, and created this plaque that showed that Sir Francis Drake had landed in California, which a lot of people already thought he had, and which maybe he did. But they faked this whole plate that they then managed to dig up and discover. And for years, that was taken as proof because it was taken as proof because it told, it simply confirmed what a lot of other people believe. But it was a, it was a complete, it was a joke on their part, but a joke that 
got taken more and more seriously over time. I think another thing about the golden age of fraternalism that's often forgotten is that fraternal societies, oath-bound secret orders, were really a kind of early welfare system for a lot of people. Uh, because remember, if you go back to the 19th century, there wasn't anything like that. Um, you know, you didn't have a job and you're indigent, you know, you got somebody to feed you or you're starved. Uh, there was no such thing as credit, okay? There wasn't like consumer credit or credit cards. I mean, those are all, I mean, a lot of people today can't believe those didn't exist, but there was a time when if you wanted to buy something, you pretty much had to save up the money until you had enough. Uh, banks certainly wouldn't, wouldn't loan you money on it. There wasn't any kind of health care. So one of the things that fraternal societies often carried with them, one of the things, one of the perk in joining was group health and death and burial insurance, uh, even help in, in you know, some cases, unemployment funds. Um, I mean, I, I heard the argument once is that where early unions got the whole idea of strike funds was, was from uh, the funds that secret societies would collect. And I, in this case, I would bring into any people interested in labor that one of the first attempts at mass labor organization in the United States, I think in the 1870s, was called the Knights of Labor. Right. And if you look at the Knights of Labor, which was trying to organize skilled workers, it again was sort of modeling itself on, on the Freemasons. I actually grew up across the street from land that still had some like derelict buildings on it. That was a uh, Masonic widows and orphans home. Though you, you could still find those in some states. Yeah, so that that then segued over into the hospitals. But yeah, at old you know old age homes, uh, you know what was then called you know sick insurance. You know health. We didn't it was called health and you know sick and injury insurance. Because uh, remember, most employers, you know, you were working in the coal mine and you got injured, the company didn't pay for it. Yeah. So yeah. on the other hand, if you belong to the lodge, the lodge could take up a, a fund that would help you. And and so really, I say up until the early 20th century, until, you know, things like state, federal and federal governments became more proactive, you know, Social Security doesn't come along in, until the 1930s. There's There's really no sort of infrastructure of that. The, the fraternal orders provided those type of basic things uh, along with fellowship and enlightenment to, to millions of people. And so I think in that way, we're a really important part of society. Absolutely. This was, a, this was very interesting, Richard. We really appreciate it. I hope everyone kind of got like the macrocosm and then the microcosm in the history of secret societies in America too. Um, what do you have planned for the future and where can people find you and check out your latest uh, books? And uh, I guess you have these courses also on um, the Great American Courses series through history that you can uh, subscribe to and check out on Amazon. Yeah, you go on to Amazon. See, I didn't even know that if you go to Amazon and you go way down, you'll find the Great Courses uh, I think secret societies is, is one of those along with many, I mean, great courses has courses on everything. Um, so if you think, Oh, all they do is weird stuff like secret societies. No, you want to learn how to play the guitar. They've got a course. You want to know more about algebra. They've got one on that too. <laughs> you want to, so there's a huge amount of stuff to, uh, 
to peruse and and all kinds of deals. And again, um, uh, I don't own any, any stock if they had any in it, but they there's there's a lot of stuff that you would I think potentially everyone could find something there that would be interesting. Yeah, I I'll give them I'll give them a free plug. Um, it's like if you have Amazon Prime, you can sign up for it. I mean, it's like eight dollars a month. And it is, um, like you said, I mean, there is a ton of stuff on there, especially like if you love history as much as I do, I mean, there's so much of that on there. That's just, um, like I, I watched the one, I watched one about the Roman Republic that Amazon prime made free. So I checked everything else out too. As so I was like, then I saw yours was on there. So you know, have started watching that, and I can't recommend that and the others more. Yeah, there's a there's a recent course that was done around the same time as mine on on the CIA, um, which I haven't seen, but I've been told is good. So those would be so. so I'm doing at the end of this month. Uh, I have to go back and shoot a course. Uh, it's going to be short as twelve episodes, not twenty four, but it's called Crimes of the Century, and really. It's about a variety of historical murder cases that at one point or another, somebody said this was the crime of the century for 15 minutes. Uh, but that includes <laughs> some familiar things like, you know, the Manson case, the Zodiac, uh, but also the murder of the Russian imperial family. Yeah, there's still a murder. Uh, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and, and the Irish ferry murder. All right. Uh, when 1895, a guy decided that he was going to burn his wife to death because he was certain she was a fairy changeling. Nice. Um, and if you've ever, you know, if you ever run across anything that hints about, you know, the, the sort of devious maids concept, you know, of maids plotting things against their employers. Well, what the murder that really sort of jump-started that was in uh, early 1930s France when two maids who were sisters uh, just one evening murdered their mistress and her daughter for reasons that were never entirely clear. Um, and uh, they became examples of uh, the oppression of the working class, some people on the French left, and they became examples of the depravity of the French lower classes to other people. Um but if Jean Genet's play, The Maids, is based upon this case. And then the Lindbergh kidnapping and others. Uh, what I wanted to do was to get just a kind of diverse selection. And the other thing about them in all of these cases is that these are murders that take place without any very simple motive. So one of the things you often tend to think of is that, I mean, the most common cases in homicide is some sort of personal dispute over usually it's over jealousy or hurt feelings one case someone gets angry and they get in a fight and someone gets killed that's how most murders occur crimes of passion but none of these crimes i can argue are crimes of passion they're all of these things that, that are in some way just calculated or simply happen often for reasons that that later on the people who, who perpetrate them can't can't really tell you. Uh, one episode goes into these these two serial killers in Weimar, Germany, who do horrible, horrible things, which you would have to see the courts to know about. But neither one of them, when they're brought to trial, pleads insanity. And when they're asked why you did this, they just go, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I did it. I'm not sorry I did it, but I really can't tell you. 
Um, so that's that's crimes of the century, which might have sequels down the road since there's no end of murders. And I'm also I just signed a contract to do a third course that would just start work on next year. So it'll be a while called Secrets of the Occult. Uh-oh. So uh, that will be another 24 episode there. So that one will be coming up down the road and and, and hopefully some some other things as well. So is this still together with the History Channel? Well, the History Channel was involved in co-production on the Secret Societies class. Okay, so the whole thing was actually produced by the Great Courses, but the History Channel and A&E were involved. Well, for instance, we had to have a meeting with them, uh, and they had script approval. Uh, and beyond that, I can't tell you exactly what the business relationship was. That's That's... You know, I, I'm not at a high enough level. <laughs> I'm not initiated to a high enough level that I would know that. <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a deal. Some of the other courses have been have been done that way. And Great Courses also has, I think, a close connection with Audible. So this is what you can you can you can see them as videos, or you can just listen to them. Uh, and there's also Audible. Great Courses also has a close connection with Audible. They produce a lot of of some of the courses simply for you can just listen to the audio if you want to you can watch and listen or you can just listen and um and i think they produce some courses exclusively for audible as well and i might do one of those at some point as well so yeah that's been good um the other project I, I knock around is this thing you mentioned to begin with, Flying Saucers and Secret Agents, which I guess would be my sort of take on the whole early UFO thing, which I think may be somewhat different than what we'd find elsewhere. Um, I sort of bring the same sort of approach to it. I take everything back to the beginning and see what was actually said and what we know, and then how things develop from there. Um, the interesting thing about that is when you get back to the beginning, sometimes you don't you don't find a lot. It would be, this is something we might talk about sometime. Uh, the key figure in Flying Saucers and Secret Agents is an early UFO contactee who, by the name of George Hunt Williamson, mm-hmm. who, by the way, was connected. He was, was connected closely to a while to the guy we were talking about, the American fascist William Dudley Pelly. Yes. He worked with him for a while, but. My take on George Hunt Williamson, who's also kind of the father of the whole ancient aliens idea, is that uh, he was working for one agency or another. Um, And if I was to take a guess, I'd say CIA because of some of the connections he had. But when you begin to look closely and the backgrounds of people he was connected with and that he sets up his uh, monastery in Peru right next door to a CIA subsidized research program. (laughs) It makes me suspicious. Uh, And that's how things go from there. That's the way I work. I get suspicious and then I try to follow my suspicions and sometimes they pan out and sometimes they don't. I'd say that that's, that's a probably good, a pretty good suspicion. There's been a lot of um, speculation on the contactees and whether that they were part of some kind of mind control program or something like that. That's, um, and it wouldn't surprise me that at least one of them would be, would have some kind of dealings, some kind of agent. I think, I think there's probably more than one. 
Um, I mean, this is this is the thing that sort of sprang up to me. This this sort of again comes from my background of you know looking for spies and other things. Is that um, the the widespread connections of people in the whole early sort of saucer cults that emerged, whether it's George Van Tassel, whether it's William, you know, Van Tassel worked for the aerospace industry. He was a test pilot for Hughes and Lockheed. Uh, he's he's well versed in that, and the other you tend to find people with military backgrounds. And when I begin to see sort of defense industry, military backgrounds, intelligence backgrounds coming, and the thing seems keeps coming up over and over again, uh, that also tends to excite my suspicions. You know, when when Williamson sort of gets a break and shows up as either a guest or an entertainer or both at a dinner party by a Palm Springs millionaire who was a, essentially by a gigantic swindler, <laughs> uh, but who also was a former member of the OSS, you know, the seabed for the CIA. And that's just kind of interesting. And then the guy that was William's graduate advisor when he was in college and who befriended him later shows up connected to that same CIA research project in Peru that Williamson ends up next to. That's kind of curious. So those would be the kind of threads I would be I would be following in that. So I guess the idea is to turn it into a book, but I don't know. If anybody has brighter ideas, let me know. I think our listeners would be interested in all that. <laughs> yeah, excellent, Richard. Thank you so much. This has been awesome to, uh, to have you on. Um, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out, and guys, we'll be back to uh, close the show. I'll get Spirit Normal. Okay, welcome back, guys. That was a long and informative show. And we spent, I think, about another 15 to 20 minutes uh, talking about uh, a whole other subject that uh, we will have up on our Patreon uh, very, very soon. Actually, you guys hear this, but uh, man, uh, that was pretty impressive. Um, we're going to have... Richard to come back on at some point to talk about uh, his Russian Revolution and Wall Street book, which I just read, which was extremely fascinating. And we'll get into that later. But uh, I was uh, pretty happy with that. I think we did a little, little nice little overview of of secret societies and really kind of dug deep into a few into a few things, especially on the golden age of fraternalism. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was really cool. The uh, I liked watching the, um, the series that we talked about his uh, the the Great Courses series. I'd really recommend go check that out. Um, there's like twenty some episodes, goes into great detail of all these historical figures and secret societies and intrigues uh, throughout the centuries. And uh, I know we were pretty much totally uh you know mostly eurocentric um as far as what we talked about but uh he he has stuff about different uh chinese and japanese secret societies also and and other international stuff uh, so it's really all you know all across the board 
yeah absolutely if you guys get a chance to check that out um you can get of course like a seven day free trial so that you don't have to pay for it but uh, i would probably highly recommend all the other things all the other courses that are on there um so that's it i think that uh we're gonna just close the show out because uh that was that was a long episode and i think that's kind of in a in a string of long episodes so guys i want to thank everybody for listening um just the usual spiel if you guys would like to support us we're at uh patreon conspira uh www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal and uh, we are also at Conspiracy Normal Podcast on YouTube. Go give us a subscription there. And uh, please uh, leave us a review. Those help out on iTunes as well. So I think without further ado, Sophie, I think we'll call it. Everybody have an awesome week. And we'll see you next week on Conspiranormal.
you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.